Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Hello, partygoers, and welcome to this week's, this bi-weeks, bi-weeks episode of Sneaky Dragon Listening Party, the show where we normally listen to a mixtape I made for Sneaky Dragon listeners when they were kind enough to send me a CDR. Like four years ago. Yeah, this is quite a while ago that I did this project, and it was pretty extensive, made a lot of them, and so I thought it would be fun for us to, for my daughter Mary and I, who's also a musical nut like myself, to to uh, listen to the music and, and uh, talk about it. And enjoy the songs, right, Mary? Yes. Mary, you know what? Sometimes. I didn't let you introduce yourself. Yes. I mean, that was kind of (laughs) rude. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, to be fair, you also didn't introduce yourself. Yeah, that's true. It's it's even even all around. I was rude to both of us. It feels like it's been longer than two weeks. Since our last recording. Oh, is that right? Which I guess it has been. It has been. By like because three we're, days. Yeah, we're, we're recording this very late. I haven't left myself a lot of editing time. But it's just the nature of life. I tried to get us to record last week. I know, but I was busy with other things last week and I didn't have time to do the, the notes. That's fair. So, here we are. That's life. So, Mary. Yes, Dad. We are still taking a bit of a break from... Wait. What? We still didn't introduce ourselves. <laughs> okay, well, I'm David Dedrick. Oh, I'm Mary Dedrick. And we are the hosts of the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party. Yes. The show that you've been listening to for five minutes before we got around to this part of it, because we're <laughs> professionals. Eh, who needs professionalism in a podcast? That's true. Overrated. The only good thing that having a podcast is good sound. Other than that, I think professionalism is overrated. Also, it should be funny. Mm-hmm. A podcast should be funny. I think so. I agree with you. I can't listen to unfunny podcasts. No, even like, if they're informative. Yeah. Like, it has to be real good. <laughs> it better be real if it's good. it's not really, really good. Also, I enjoy it if it's like a limited run. Mm-hmm. Like, I know, like, oh, there's eight episodes of this. I can listen to eight episodes yeah. that are not funny. But if there's like a show and it has like 300 episodes and none of them are funny at all, I'm like, what's Oof. the point? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I want to... If I listen to a music or a music show or ever listen to a movie podcast, I want to laugh. Like, that's part of why I'm listening to these shows. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I'm exactly. There f- I'm there for the lulls. And uh, yeah, that was part of the kind of, well, the the ruling theme of like doing Completely Beatles, for instance, or or this show, obviously. Any show, really. I just think, yeah, sense of humor is, is the whole point of it. Any of the mini podcasts you've done? Yeah, they're all, they're all partly there to be informative, but also... You know, for me and whoever I'm co-hosting with, mostly with Ian, mm-hmm. you know, it's there. We're just there to have fun and talk um, about things. I'm going to protest yep. that Sneaky Dragon is not there to be informative. No, Sneaky Dragon isn't really there to be informative. But we've done lots of shows where the whole idea of the show is to be to have like a historical element to it or mm-hmm. a background to what we're talking about. Oh yeah, but not Sneaky Dragon. No, it's pretty much a goof goof around sort of show, and. Uh, for a long time, I prided us on our not bothering to Google things and just guessing at stuff. <laughs> but we seem to have sort of dropped that since Ian's close to a computer. He now feels very tempted to, to look things up. It's a bit disappointing. I'm disappointed in his lack of trust in his own memory. It turns out we're almost always wrong, but that's fine. Why not, why not pass along the... I mean, when we, the don't, going? when we don't look stuff up, that's yep. when you say that Fly at Night is on Lights in the Valley, when really it's on Dreams, Dreams, Dreams. <laughs> you know? 
that's true. That was the, the hoist by my own petard. So, Mary, we're, because I took a quite a long break after I finished the last mixtape, I thought it'd be fun to imitate that break in the podcast. And so, and so last we're not week, doing the podcast for the next last months. week. That's <laughs> right. Last episode, we did top five, some top five lists. And so I thought we would continue that on this episode with some more, po- more top five lists. I'm having trouble with words today, everyone. So uh, last time we did, what did we do last time we did? I'm so mad at my label songs. We did some Christian psych rock songs. Mm-hmm. We did some songs about Satan. Mm-hmm. We did some... Uh, prog rock songs. Prog rock. Oh, that, prog, that was the next one? We did yep. prog rock songs. And I guess that was all we did because the prog rock songs were very long. So we... we they sure were. They not sure as long as they could have been. Because I intentionally chose like shorter versions of most of the songs. And thank goodness for that. <laughs> so. Um, you know what? I was... So I've been... Um, making these playlists on my phone. Yes. That are not playlists or like, they're not like mixtapes. Yeah. They're just, um, I've been sorting all the songs on my phone into decades. Okay. So I have like all my 60s songs, all my 70s songs, all mm-hmm. my 80s songs, all my 90s songs. Sure. You know? I'm surprised you have 80s songs, but go on. I have like five. Okay. <laughs> no, I have- Love Cats? Of, I have Hat Full of Hollow by the Smiths, the, okay. whole, the whole album. And then I have- like one prefab sprout song. Oh, this one? I think mm. I just have Green Isaac. Mm. I have, I mean, I guess I could check on my phone. <laughs> I think I have, there's a couple XTC songs that were in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I have a song by The Clash. Okay. Which song? Should I stay or should I go? That's 80s. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really not a lot. I was like, oh, I don't think I, because what happened was I was like, I don't really have, like, I don't really listen to that many songs from the 70s. Mm. Then I was like going through my phone and I was like, I do have a fair amount of songs from the seventies. Yeah. Um, okay, here's my eighties songs. Okay. Should I stay or should I go? Yeah. Slipping bracket into something and bracket by the feelies. Yeah, that's eighties. Um, that's the joint, funky four plus one. Good song. Straight ahead by Greg Sage. Good one. Down in Bermuda, Jonathan Richman. If you're curious about some of these songs, we'll be hearing them on forthcoming mixtapes. <laughs> I've got a bunch of monochrome set. That's like the majority of them. Okay. Um Age of Consent by New Order. Mm-hmm. Green Isaac, Prefab Sprout. Yep. You may notice these are alphabetical by artist. <laughs> okay. Um, Back on the Chain Gang by The Pretenders. Okay. A whole bunch of Smiths, and then Blister in the Sun by Violence, Violent Femmes. Oh, okay. So I do 46 songs. That's pretty but good. most of those are... Um, monochrome set? Monochrome set and The Smiths. Yeah. I've got three... I'm surprised you don't have Love Cats by The Cure. I don't have any Cure on my mm. phone. Um, but yeah. But yeah, 48 songs on that compared to 73 songs on my 60s one. Um, 71 songs on my 70s. You have a pretty curated phone, right? Just because you have a limited amount yes. of space. Yeah. 154 on my 90s. Wow. And 269 songs on my 2000 to 2010. Or 2000 to 2009. Cool. And then I have not yet done the 2010 to 2019. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, just because I find that people will often say like, oh, like 60s music is this and 60s music is that. Or like 70s music is this. It's like, well, you know, music is so vast. Yeah. Right? Like it really can't, you can't really express what it all is. Yeah. In one decade, except for the 80s, <laughs> which all the music is terrible. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, it's just, it's interesting to be able to like, just like throw it on shuffle yeah. and just hear all these like different songs. Sure. From, one time period. Yeah. I did. The one thing that I did do, though, is I kept my 
Brazilian music out of it. Okay. Just because I felt like that was like, it's just sort of a different thing, Mm -hmm. right? It's not really like super emblematic of a specific time period in music as it is like a specific time and place within Brazilian music within, yeah. Within like one specific country. Right. Yeah, Yeah. And like, yeah, if you're looking at like music of, um, like that era, Right, like you wouldn't be like, oh, Tropicalia, that was like a really big part of <laughs> the sixties, you yeah. know, music in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no, yeah, you, I could have lived my whole life without knowing about it, except that I turned on the radio one time and heard a Caetano Veloso song, yeah, being played on the radio, and I just heard about half of it actually. I missed part of the song, but I liked it so much that I started like seeking it out, sort of buying Brazilian music, trying to find the song, and and uh, really got into it. But it was just that little bit of happenstance, you know. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, what I was going to say was... Before I interrupted you? No, before I got off track by <laughs> talking about my decade playlist, yeah. was that I was... Because I've just been going through and, like, you know, adding them in. And I was as I was putting Bobby Kahn yeah. onto Bobby Kahn and the Glass Gypsies, who we talked about, I talked about his song... We Come in Peace. We Come in Peace, from 2004, The yeah. Homeland. Yes. Um, and it said, because... I have an iPhone and I have iTunes and it like kind of classifies music mm-hmm. when you upload them. And I classified him as prog rock. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, well, based on what I read about him, kind of makes sense. Hmm. But I do think that We Come in Peace is very not like the rest of his stuff. No, that album's quite, uh, it's a thing of itself, a thing in itself. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I think like his, like he, he does kind of feel like a performance artist mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. That was, that was interesting. So there is one prog rock artist who has a song that I like. <laughs> Bobby Kahn. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a prog rock song, yeah. but you know. Yeah. Well, funny, speaking of the 90s, you you uh, made me think that uh, we have someone to thank, and that's Chris Roberts, uh, one of our listeners who was kind enough, uh, searches off everyone. He found a copy, apparently found two copies of Local Rabbits, the Local Rabbits album, um, You Can't Touch This which we mysteriously lost here at our house. We don't know where it ended up. And uh, I was, it's a, one of my most favorite albums, maybe my top 10 if I had a top 10 albums. And Chris found uh, two copies in Glasgow of all places, which seems so crazy. Yeah. That this kind of very obscure Canadian album that came out on uh, Sloan's boutique, out their own label, mm-hmm. Murder Records, just kind of found its well both of them found their way to Scotland. It seems very strange. But I guess that's the nature of independent distribution, I suppose, is that you end up with Music in funny places. Music in funny places, yeah, depending on you know, if there's small small record stores around who want to support you know, different scenes and things. So yeah, so thank you very much, Chris, for sending that C D. It was very it was very pleasing actually. Lisa, my wife, handed it to me th- through the window when I was recording Fansplainers last week. So there was a moment where Ian was talking and I, was, I wasn't I was even listening. I was uh, getting this <laughs> envelope from from Lisa. <laughs> and uh, then I, I didn't open it, though. I put it aside because I, I didn't want to... I don't want to ignore him anymore, but... Do you um, want to, like, ruin the episode by opening up a piece of mail? <laughs> yes. Let's just maybe just mean it's completely unrelated to what we're talking about. Uh, but yes, I was so pleased when I opened it up, and there it was. In uh, spotless condition as well. Yeah, he, like, ran inside to show me. He's like, look, look what we got in the mail. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I was pretty... I was very pleased. Yes. So, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Everyone's happy here. Mary was very uh, surprised as well. I was. Sorry. It's okay. We trying to do? just like sit up straighter. Oh, okay. So, should we start our top fives, Mary? Sure. What's the first one? The first one is one I think that most people will have a top five for. 
So I don't think I'm like, I feel like I'm almost like going to be just repeating something that everyone has done. This is going to be the most niche thing on the planet then. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> what, do you think I'm being ironic? Yes. <laughs> uh, this is top five green people songs. There it is. <laughs> 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 you got it, Mare. As if she read my mind. So, I don't know why I decided to do this one. I just was listening to the song we're going to play next. The song we're going to play first, I guess. And, or as soon as I finished talking, and, and I was, was just listening to it, I was thinking like, wow, it's weird that there are so many songs that have like green people in them. I don't even mean aliens. I mean like, just people who are mysteriously green in right. the songs. And so, I, uh... Just kind of put together this little list of people of green people. Mm -hmm. So they're not always like the color green, but I I just I don't know what they are. Wait, hmm? they're not always the color green. No, but they're green. But they have green in the, in their name or or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll start off with some jazz. This is uh, a singer I I rate very highly. This is Blossom Deary from her 1976 album My New Celebrity Is You, and this song is called Long Daddy Green. So let's give it a listen, everybody. Daddy 
ignores you when you need him most Likes to pretend he's a hard-to-get-next-to guy He'll give you the eye while he's waving goodbye Long Daddy Green likes to hypnotize And melt you with his magic eyes Knows he can make you believe you're the only one He'll show you the sun Then he'll grab it Blossom Deary, everyone, and her wonderful, I get, you can almost see she has a, a childlike voice. It's kind of high, very high voice, very child childlike. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of that song, Mary? I didn't like it. You didn't like this song? Nope. What was wrong with it? Uh, her voice. Oh. Oh. You don't like the Schoolhouse Rock figure eight? She also sang that one. I feel like it works better there. Okay. I feel like you'd said something when we were not recording, which was that these songs are kind of ominous or creepy. Yeah, there's a certain kind of creepy element to some of these songs, I think. I feel that in this one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's kind of an ominous. Unsettling. He's an ominous figure, this Long Daddy Green. Yeah. And it sounds like, yeah, you don't quite know what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a certain kind of creepy element to him, but but I kind of like that element to the song as well. Blossom Deary, if people don't really know who she is, she's become more popular now. When I, when I first, obviously when I first discovered Blossom Deary, I was like eight or nine, and I I was listening to Figure Eight, which was part of Schoolhouse Rocks. Now uh, the 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 first first season, the multiplication, uh, multiplication. Uh, multipli- oh man, I'm multiplication. Having, yeah, I'm having trouble speaking this week. Uh, multiplication rock rocks, and um, that song is very beautiful. Very just a very spare, simple song of is her singing over a electronic piano, and that kind of pointed to where she was going to go in the 70s because before that she played in a very uh, piano bar style her on piano in a very intimate setting 
almost you could almost either be at one of her shows mm -hmm. and she played a lot of shows around new york she did residencies at various bars piano bars and stuff like that and that was basically what she did for her whole almost her whole career she wasn't born in new york city she came from she was born in new york state but but it was when she uh, finished high school she she dropped her first name which was Mar margreth margrita uh, her full name was margrita blossom deary uh, her father was a, a Scots-Irish and her mother was Danish. And I guess she was called Blossom for her middle name because when she was born, a friend had dropped by and had brought a bunch of peach blossoms over. And so they, they, they kind of inspired her middle name. And so when she decided she was going to become a professional musician, she, she dropped the Margrethe and became Blossom Deary, which is like a great name. What did you say, sweetie? Oh, yeah, it so is. One of those sort of great names that you almost would think someone would make up for themselves, but it oh, was her totally. real name. Yeah. Yeah, she dropped out of she should say dropped when she finished high school. She just left where she lived. She moved to the city and she started pursuing a musical career. And when she went to France for a while, and that's where she met Bob Duro, uh, one of my kind of musical heroes, mm -hmm. Bob Duro, and he was the person who produced and wrote a lot of the early schoolhouse rock songs and sang with Miles Davis and wrote a lot of stuff. He produced the Holy Motor Rounders. He worked with the Fugs as a as a musical arranger. And just kind of one of those really interesting careers that, you know, you just kind of went all over the place and, and, and you know, did a little bit here, did a little bit there. Uh, they sang together in a, in a group, in a vocal group in France. Mm -hmm. And then she met this uh, Danish flautist and they got married. She was married for a short time and then she, she divorced him and came back to the States and never remarried. She just uh, spent the rest of her career in New York and London. She kind of traveled between the two and would do residencies. And mostly, like I say, mostly if you listen to a lot of her albums, this is her in a very intimate setting playing the piano and singing. And then in the 70s, she took some time off and then she came back and she started like just working with the electrical piano or the electric piano, just playing that and, and kind of similar songs though. Like this song, I think, think he still kind of has an intimate sound as if she's just sitting there singing to you and warning you about this Long Daddy Green fellow. But I, I, I enjoy it, Mary. I mean, I figured you did since you put it on here. <laughs> hey, question. Sure. Are any of these songs about Al Green? No. Because he's a green person. He is He is an actual green person, yeah. but no. No. Is there a song called Al Green? No, but does it have mm. to have green in the title or can it just be about green? Al well, Green. But I just wondered if it was about Al Like, it's funny. I always think that's kind of funny. Like, like Blossom Deer herself mm -hmm. wrote a song, I think in 1970, called Dusty Springfield. Oh, okay. About the singer Dusty Springfield. Right. And there is, of course, the song that we listened to last episode, uh, Bring Me the Head of David Geffen, about David Geffen. <laughs> That's right. But he's not really a singer. No, so you'd have I to don't. Think of, I'm trying to think of other songs that... Oh, that are about singers? Or that have like a singer's name in it. There is this, there is um, the song Van Dyke Parks on Van Dyke Parks' album Song Cycle. Mm -hmm. So he, But he's not really singing about another singer. He's singing about it himself. Although what's interesting about the song Van Dyke Parks is that it is credited to public domain. Mm-hmm. So it is. It is a song that anyone could play without without cop, you know, without, out of copyright. But there's a song on the album called "Public Domain," which is credited to Van Dyke Parks. Oh, okay. So interesting. Having some fun. <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting uh, thing to think about. Our songs uh, about, by people. Yeah, about like um, other singers. Oh, yeah. um, the local rabbits one about Trent Reznor. Oh yeah, the Rez. Yeah, the Rez. Yeah, that's a there's one. There's a good one. Yeah, yeah Trent Reznor. I'm sure there's other ones too. I just can't. I, there's one in the, like kind of like the, the corner of my eye. Oh, Jackie Wilson said the the uh, Van Van Morrison song. Question. Yeah. Um, would Loudon Wainwright's song about his son count? 
when, because he wrote the song when his son was a baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rufus is a, is a tip man. Yeah. But Rufus Wainwright is now a famous singer. Yeah. I don't know if that would count because that's not really about him as a singer about who. Yeah. This is I wouldn't consider Martha Wainwright's song, which is basically like a long insult to her dad. A song about Wainwright, but I guess it is. Right. But it doesn't say his name. Yeah. I'm kind of. I would want a That's, song that would have the name of the artist yeah, so in the like, song title. To go back to Rufus Wainwright, yeah. his song Beauty Mark is about his mother, mm-hmm. but he never mentions her by name, That's and right. her name is not in it. So yeah. that doesn't. And it's that one is also not about, not really about her as a singer. It's about her as a person, right? Exactly. Yeah, there are there there are other ones, and I can't think of it. There's a song that's like So and So's Tears or something like that, and yeah, um, I think there's a song by the Dexys Midnight Runners that that name checks. Oh, Gino that gino washington um yeah i have to think about that that's a good top five list there's a possibility <laughs> well i have to what about um carrie and lowell but not as not not performers uh lowell is but now he is but i don't think he was at that time right so they have to be a performer at the time yeah okay. yeah and i think i think a certain amount of of no of being known as well right yeah that makes sense all right well let's let's go on to our next song we'll we'll ponder this while we listen to jerry marsden and the song Gilbert Green, which was released as a single in 1967. So let's give this a listen, everyone. Here we go. This is Jerry Marston. On the hill inside a house of Thornwell Reach Stands a man who's feeling very tired Looking at a song he wrote some time ago Could have made it big inside a Broadway show Every day I go away and find ideas Think I climb on top of somewhere high Couldn't I write a song about a man who's dead Didn't really know if he was off his head Everybody knows That's the way it goes On a sunny day Mending fifty carpets that had worn Humming to himself a song of yesteryear His hearing wasn't good But his eyes were clear Everybody knows That's the way it goes
All right, and we're back. And Mary, what did you think of Gilbert Green? I thought it was a fun song. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah, uh, kind of an uh, example. Well, people would use this as an example of Toy Town Psych in its portrayal of a of a non entity in musical form, which is part of the Toy Town Psych trope. Is is uh, doing a song about someone who is either not a non entity is kind of a horrible thing to say, but but someone who's like unknown. You know, they're not like famous. They're not. Yeah. They're nothing like remarkable about them. They're they just go through their their life. And that's kind of a very, uh, very kind of Toy Town British psych uh, style. So Jerry Morrison, Mare, she, she, he was originally the leader of Jerry Morrison and the Pacemakers, who were the second act signed by Brent Epstein, the manager of the Beatles. And their first, their first single that they recorded was "How Do You Do It," which George Martin had wanted the Beatles to perform as their first single, but they, they talked him out of doing it and in doing um, Love Me Do instead. And so he gave that to Jerry Morrison and the Pacemakers and they had a number one hit with it. Because it is a pretty good song. It's like, it's very, it's very commercial. It's very, it's very, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for it, but I can't think of it. It's very, it's very that, that thing I'm thinking about. That's what it oh, is. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. You know what I mean? Yeah, we know that thing. That's that thing. And... Lis- listeners, I'm shrugging right now. <laughs> so it's, I guess in 19, in the mid 60s, he left the Pacemakers and tried to have a solo career. I don't think he really had a big hit at the time. This song was was uh, g- was gifted to him by the Bee Gees. They wrote this song at the time. They they had a big hit in the charts with "To Love Somebody," and I guess they didn't want to pile on with more songs, that, you know, and and kind of dilute their their uh, sales. But apparently, it's a decision they later regretted because they felt like they could have done it better than Marston did. But it has that kind of uh, like I said, it's it's one of those kind of. Toy, toy Town Psych songs, where in this case, it's kind of a meta song about a person writing a song about a character who writes songs that no one ever hears. It's the story of, of him, right? And in this song, there's a fire, and then they discover his music in the in the fire. And this song was produced for Marston by B, the Bee Gees producer, Robert Stigwood, who, this is a sort of circles within circles, had worked with Brian Epstein as a assistant uh, when Brian Epstein was, was uh, managing the Beatles and Jerry, Mar- Jerry Marston and the Pacemakers. And the B-side to this single, Mary, mm-hmm. just to continue on this Beatles thing, was written by Tony Sheridan, who the Beatles backed on their first professional recording session in Hamburg when they did a version of my, a rockin' version of My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean called My Bonnie. And they backed that with another rockin' version of When the Saints Go Marching In, which was just called The Saints. And it was kids' interest in buying that single at NEMS, at the furniture store that where Brian Epstein managed the record section for his parents. That's where he first heard about the Beatles because people were coming in asking for this album. And because the Beatles were better known in, in Liverpool than Tony Sheridan, they're asking for this record by the Beatles. Right. Well, I think they were credited as the Beat Brothers on the single. Hmm. So it was a bit confusing for for Brian Epstein, but that's what, why he became interested in them, and that's how he discovered them and and uh, then became their manager. So there you go, wheels within wheels. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I was consuming a Slurpee when yes. you said that. <laughs> so let's go on to our third song in this top five list. This is going to be something a little bit a little newer, Mary. This song is from 2016. What? It's from their album Mirage. This is Josephine Orn and the Liberation. And the song is called Sister Green Eyes. So here we go. Sister 
All right, and we're back. Mary, mm-hmm. what did you uh, think of Sister Green Eyes? I thought it was a fun song. I okay. liked it. Yeah? Yeah, it was good. It's kind of psychedelic. Yep. Yes. that That's what they're going for. They're uh, kind of a improv psychedelic band from improv? Sweden. Yeah, they kind of jam or do impro- improvised musical settings, and then they then they kind of write around that. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I guess their their name comes from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which, by the way, the Beatles used for their song, the final song on Revolver. The song, do you know what song is that? The, the final song on Revolver, Mary? Is it Revolver? <laughs> it's not called Revolver. It's called Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, okay. And it's a very weird song, but the song opens with a quote from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, actually, it opens with a quote from... Timothy Leary's translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is uh, it's like, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. So John Lennon took those those words and turned them into a great song. And the liberation took the words, the idea of liberation upon hearing the, hearing in the betweens is this Buddhist concept that they uh, adopted into their name, the liberation. So I guess the idea of music as being the liberation of music is the hearing in-betweens. I don't really know what that means. Mm. I have not reached that level of Buddhist understanding, everybody. I'm still trying to work out this one-hand clapping thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't get it. Okay. Well, I don't have much more to say about Josephine Orne and the liberation, mostly because they put out only a few albums. So Yeah, I have nothing they to need say to, about like, them. They need to get a history going. That's what I'm yeah. trying to tell you. Although it looks like it's one of those things where like the band were doing their thing and then one day, two members of the band like kicked everybody else out, mm. and then started like hired new people and are carrying on as as the so-called liberation. But really, the other original members are all gone. Mm. I don't know if that's a good idea. <clears throat> no. It seems like a band is an organic thing, and if you start messing with it, you're you do so at your peril. Yeah, bands don't often survive major lineup changes. No, that's true. That's true. Which makes sense, right? Hmm. It does make sense. Okay, let's get to our. This is our fourth song. It's our fourth song in this top five. Top five songs again, about green people, everybody. Just in case yep. you didn't listen to the last episode. Yeah. Um, Dad mentioned there that these are not in any sort of order. No. We're they're not just... going from best to worst or worst to best or anything. Yeah. They're all just kind of the same. I, they're not that they're all the same. I put them in order uh, that they sounded best to me as a, as a listening mm. sequence. That's That was the only order I put them in. So, So this is... A band I love, a band from the 80s, and apparently this is a song that Mary loves because she mentioned it already as being part of her 80s mix. This is Prefab Sprout. The song is Green Isaac, one, I think, from their album Swoon in 1984. It came out in 1984. Wow. That's a long time ago. Let's give us a listen. Ten years before I was born. Yes. Let's give a listen to, let's give a listen to Green Isaac, everybody. Stella Marta. Making such a fool of thee when you'd love to be someone. This is the time I've set aside from selling old rope and telling bad jokes and cul-de-sac cries. I've learned today. While falling apart The most eloquent way To speak or to pray Is straight from the heart Oh, but to shine like Joan of Arc You must 
forget the stars and choose from twelve notes. In itself, it's a joy. Whether it's soothes or annoys, a song starts in the throat. Take two kinds of love and one wedding day. Your thoughts on Green Isaac? Um, I like Green Isaac. Of course you do. (laughs) I mean, I think I'm biased because I grew up listening to it. Yeah. Like, I've listened to this song a lot since Mm -hmm. I was a baby, you know? So it's like, and Eve and I were driving when we were listening to this song, Mm -hmm. and she was like, oh, this song makes me so nostalgic. (laughs) Um, And, like, it's not every song is like that, right? Like, a lot of the songs that we listen to I have known since I was... Um, younger, right? Like a lot of the Stephen Malcolmus songs, yeah. or the song um, "Ordinary Joe" by Terry Callier. Yeah, yeah. Callier. Yeah. Uh, and those aren't songs that I'm like, you know, pumped about or anything. Yeah. But um, yeah, some songs just hit you, you know, mm. Mm. with that nostalgia. But <laughs> this and this one does that. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, I I tormented a lot of people with this album when I was a when I was a a teenager right this album came out when i was in grade 12 and at that time through sheer force of will and my dominant personality and my control freakiness i ran the radio in in, in the art uh classes that i was i was in at that time and i was in all art classes at that part of my school time because i i found that was a way i discovered that was a way to get out of doing science in school and math was to take all art classes and say you were going to go into graphic arts and so that's what i did I said I was going into graphic arts, although I wasn't really too interested in graphic arts. But by saying that, I got out of math and science. <laughs> and so I would play 
the local university radio station, CITR, which came out of the University of British Columbia. And because I, uh, even though we were a long way away, because uh, of the peculiar geography of Vancouver, where UBC was way out on the, the well, long way lands. away. Was that, what do you say? The endowment lands. The endowment lands, yeah. And they were kind of up on a hill. And then North Delta was on a hill. But in between us was, was Richmond, which is as flat as a pancake. Mm-hmm. And then Delta itself, which is also flat as a pancake, because yep. they're both they're both um, a Delta. They're both deltas. That's right. They're just they're right in the mouth of the Fraser and basically built up of sand that is you know over time this the silt built up and made these these raised you know areas which are great for farming because they're flat and really fertile. So yeah, the the sound from CITR would just magically make its way to to, to Delta, and so. You know, I listen to it at home, but I also would insist on playing it in the school, <laughs> and much to I'm and the not amusement of most of those students I was with, because you know they wanted to hear Bob Seger and whatever else was being played on on the local radio, and I was insisting that we listen to this really strange music from all, everywhere on CITR. So, and this was heavily in rotation at this time, this album. And then I was really lucky. I got given $20 by my, my grandmother for my birthday. What? Yeah, $20? I know. $20 for my grandma. And I took that $20 and I paid the $16.99 it cost to buy this album in, on Oof, import. Import. Because it wasn't available domestically at that time. Pre-Pap Sprout, really? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> you sound surprised, man. Um, do, I, do I sound surprised? Are you sure? <laughs> you, Are you sure you sound surprised? You do. And so yeah, I went and paid full full market value for this for that album, but I don't regret it. That's I love that album. I've I have it in several different forms now, just because I bought it uh, through through the years. Because I think I also have, I think I might, I do have it on CD a couple different ways, and then uh, I have the uh, the album, of course, still to this day. But I do love this song. Your mum thought this song was actually called Green Aardvark. Yes. When we when I play it for her in the car, I think that that must be a, a common thing with prepub sprout. Okay. Because there's also the episode of Space mm. where they're throwing a party and Daisy is singing a prepub sprout song and getting the lyrics the, all wrong. The king of rock and roll. Yeah. Yes, she's singing um, hot dog, jumping frog, have Al- a cookie, have a cookie instead of Albuquerque, <laughs> which is a reference to that and also a reference I think because their songs are not very nonsensical as mm. well, like. Green yeah. Isaac, what does that mean, right? So yeah. you're just saying you're not going to think, oh, this song's about some guy named Green Isaac. Yeah, he's walking backwards through a room. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> mom, obviously he's not an aardvark. Obviously he's a guy named Isaac walking backwards through a room. Wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course it's uh, Albuquerque, not have a cookie. Why would a jumping frog and a hot dog <laughs> be connected to a cookie? Or to Albuquerque? <laughs> yeah. The, the, um... The other interesting thing to me about this song is this how much, you know, there's a very long kind of preamble, the the very weird, weirdly sung beginning to the song, which goes on for quite a while before you get into the actual like kind of poppy part of the song. And then, of course, it kind of goes out again on that weirdly sung bit. Yeah. Pew Sprout. Mm. I found another song that's about a musician. Oh, okay. Um, Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. That's right. About Duke Ellington. That's a good I one. I was also going to ask what your thoughts were on if the song is about the artist themselves. Like the person singing the song? Yep. But rather than like being inspired by the, like in really, like how does, how do the lyrics relate? Like how does the name of the artist relate to the, in the song? It's like the name of the, the, the song. So you don't think Sir Duke is about? Duke no, no, Sir, that's, that's, okay. that's a separate thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like 
would that count as being about and like it does count as being about a musician but yeah it's i'm okay with that i'm okay with that different musicians yeah i think that's so fine. there's a father john misty song called the night josh tillman came to Kay. our apartment no no we we can't have him uh why not his name his name is josh tillman yeah yeah no no why why not no why doesn't that count no because he's not singing about another artist he's singing about himself yeah, no. That's what I'm asking. I'm asking. Oh, I thought you meant like he uses the name of another artist in a song, but he relates it to himself. Oh, I thought that'd no, be okay. No, no. That'd be okay. But no. Okay, because then there's count. another one called Funky John by Johnny Cameron. Okay. Which Which is about himself? Probably, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to imagine. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, let's uh let's leave. Let's leave little Green Isaac. Okay. And we'll go on to our final Green Person song. And this song is everyone is basically the reason why I put together this mix of Green People songs because I wanted you, dear listener, to hear this song because I love this song so much. And it wasn't Mary, about Green Isaac? Was that? It wasn't about Green Isaac? Nope. I okay. do like Green Isaac a lot. I figured that it was inspired by Green Isaac, but... No, it wasn't actually. All right, well, it was inspired by this next song. This is, okay. m- this is Michael Hurley from his second album, which was called Armchair Boogie, which came out in 1971. This is Light Green Fellow. Here we go, everyone. I'm going to your house Gonna knock On the door I'm going to your house Gonna knock on the door Then you see Your light green fellow once more I'm a light green I'm a light Light green, I'm a light green fellow There ain't nobody knows You're a light green fellow Looking all around Looking for the telephone Looking all around Looking for the telephone Thinking of calling you Cause I know you're alone Your sheets are green And your light is yellow Sheets are green And your light is yellow Nobody knows Your light green in the window but it's so dark I don't see you looking in the window but it's so dark I don't see you why don't you light a candle your curtains are drawn but I'd see through
dark I don't see you Looking in the window But it's so dark I don't see you Why don't you light a candle Curtains are drawn But I'd see through And we're back. Mary. Yes. Thoughts on Michael Hurley. I liked it. Well, you better because you also grew up with this song. Yeah. <laughs> Did I? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't remember this one so much. Oh, okay. This would have been in the mix for sure. Yeah. I, I do like this song a lot. I think, I don't know why, but Green Isaac was one that was played a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. Probably because you like them a lot. Mm-hmm. But also it's likely that they were in one of the mixes that got caught stuck in mom's car for years. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure yeah. that's probably the case. Because I know that, she, oh, I always assume that she liked that song because of because she likes Aardvark so much. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, yeah, this was f- part of my uh, immortal Holy Moto Rounders, Jeffrey Frederick and the Clam Tones, Michael Hurley mixtape, 100 Minutes of, of Perfection. Which I think I listened to for about three years before I finally got, I finally moved on from it. I was really obsessed with with the, with this music at the time, mm. and I just love this song. And this is one of those songs where where I, the song really wins me over is in the final part of the song. I just love the little sung part at the end of the song where it's just kind of the wordless. The he's just kind of singing. Like, I can't I can't sing it, everybody. But you know when he's just singing uh, with kind of, and then that that really great uh, fiddle part by Robin Romali as well really makes the song and. This also has a sort of unsettling feel to it. This late green fellow who's peeping in your kitchen window. I don't know if he has the, your best interest at heart. Yeah, no, you're right. Definitely, definitely some creepy songs. <laughs> but I, I do dearly love this song. Okay, so let's move on. We've talked about Michael Hurley before, everybody. I think he's really great. He's a living treasure. If you see the movie, if you happen to see the movie with Ben Foster... And the young and the young actress from New Zealand who is also in Jojo Rabbit. Playing, Leave no trace. Leave no trace. That's right. There's a scene in that film. It's a very good movie on its own, by the way. A really great movie, actually. Mm-hmm. I really like that movie. But I was, my mind was blown when part in near the end of the film. There's a scene where they go to this camp and there's Michael Hurley playing with another woman. They're just playing songs together. Yeah, it was like. They just kind of wandered into a place to record a movie, and <laughs> yeah. Michael Hurley was just sitting there. Yeah, yeah. And was like, well, yeah, I can play some music. Sure, sure. That's almost what it felt like. It just felt like so organic to, yeah. the, to the experience of the characters, too. Because, I mean, the other thing is, it's not like it's not like they had him in there because they were like, oh, ho, ho, everyone's going to love that we have Michael Hurley in this. <laughs> yeah, I you know. know. Like, exactly. It's like so the... niche. Probably, like, what, like 1% of, their, of the people who watch the movie recognized Michael yeah. Hurley because the other thing is it's one thing to listen to a song mm-hmm. and know his songs yeah it's another thing to people to recognize him by sight yeah you know which of course I did right away yeah of course and I've, well I've seen him live so that no I know but what's interesting about that is I almost feel like they were they were at an actual place near Portland yeah like an actual like place where I people live in that uh, or yeah and in Oregon there and 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 Hurley lives there, or had friends or whatever, and just happened to be there. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of put him in the movie. I don't think it was planned. 
I really don't. I don't know, but it doesn't feel like it. And it feels, it seems weird to me, unless the director is a big fa- a fan of his or something. That's, mm-hmm. which would be cool, but I don't know. She would be of the age of it. Yeah. Deborah Granick, born okay. 1963. She yeah. did Winter's Bone. Yeah, she's very good. Anyway, Leave No Trace. Very good movie. It is the second most reviewed film to hold an approval rating of 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Leave No Trace? Mm-hmm. Well, because it's really good. Ask what the first is. The first one? What is the first one? Paddington 2. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> that movie's a masterpiece. Yep. That is a just a drop-dead masterpiece. Okay, let's move on, there. Let's move on to our next popular subject for our top five songs. People who like to make playlists, this is the first. Sub- this is the second subject they go to right away after they finish with the Green People ones. You know what it is, Mary? What? It's drowning songs. So, are you ready for some drowning songs? You sure. Okay. Let's hear. Here we go. So this is uh, sounds. So our last mix was yeah. our last top five was yeah. ominous. Yeah. This one also seems ominous. Well, we're gonna end. We're gonna end with a celebration, but we'll start off with celebration of drowning. We're gonna start off with death. This is uh, Harry Nelson. With Going Down from his 1977 album, I have to carefully pronounce it, Mary. It's it's uh, his 1977 album, Kninin Ilsanen. And this is, uh, here we go, this is Going Down, everybody. Deeper than the deepest ocean. 
think of going down by harry nelson i'm not sure okay (laughs) it was it was like a i don't know it was it was one of those ones where i was like whenever i felt like i knew if i liked it or not yeah it something else happened and i was like (laughs) oh i don't know now you know (laughs) like how do you mean just like i don't i don't know i don't know how to explain it better than that okay it's an interesting song has very interesting orchestration in it. Mm-hmm. I think, like I think, as an arrangement, it's yeah. very, it's very interesting. There were definitely parts of it I liked. Mm-hmm. But there were other parts that were off-putting, or yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's uh, that is very interesting. So this was Nilsson's fourteenth album, and it was his last with his record company, which was RCA RCA Records, and it kind of was came in a kind of a bad period for Nilsson. So. I think in 1974, he had recorded an album with John Lennon called Pussycats. And this was recorded during John Lennon's so-called Lost Weekend, which was a time where he'd left Yoko Ono for a while. Mm -hmm. And he moved in with her assistant, her former assistant, I guess, May Pang. And they were were living large in Los Angeles. So he left New York where where Yoko Ono was and he moved moved west, moved as far far west as he could from her and, and settled in Los Angeles. And he became a member of a club that Harry Nelson was long, a long-standing member of, along with musicians like Ellis Cooper and ex-monkey uh, Mickey Dolenz, called the Hollywood Vampires. And the purpose of this, this club was to stay out as long as you could, stay up as long as you could, get as wasted as you possibly could, and cause as much trouble as you possibly could. <laughs> so like so famously when John Lennon was in Los Angeles and the vampires were out and about, they got thrown out of the Troubadour Club for heckling the Smothers Brothers who were attempting to perform a show there. And Can you imagine can you imagine? Yes. Getting heckled. <laughs> By John Lennon? Yeah. Like <laughs> Oh man, what a blow to your ego, you know? <laughs> I think it was meant in a good natured way. They knew the Smothers Brothers. They were right. they were friendly with the Smothers yeah. Brothers. Harry Nelson was very friendly with his mother's brothers. And I think, so I think it was meant in a, in a good natured way, but I think the fact that they were really, really drunk, mostly, most likely on Brandy Alexander's, which was their drink of choice at that time. <laughs> um, I think... What is a Brandy Alexander? I don't really know. Hmm. I am not a drinker. But I imagine, this is how I imagine it, Mary. Mm-hmm. Brandy, mm-hmm. invented by someone named Alexander. Hmm. That's about as far as I can go with it. For some reason, I feel like it would have cherry flavors in it. Cherry flavors. That's a guess. It wouldn't be called Brandy Jubilee then? Good point. I know. I'm full of them. So. Ooh, it sounds terrible. Oh, okay. What is it? Brandy. A fortified Brandy, wine. Brandy. Yep. Uh, creme de coco. Cacao. Creme de cacao. That's <laughs> cocoa. Um, oh, I guess it's not quite cocoa, but anyway. And cream. Oh. That does sound kind of awful. Yeah. It's, uh, and it te- uh, usually has cognac as the brandy okay so cognac creme de cacao and cream hmm. you can also have it with a gin base Ugh. served straight up without ice standard garnished grated nutmeg whoa 
<laughs> one part cocktail, one part creme de cacao, and one one part fresh cream. Hmm. So anyway, they really like to drink those. And man, no wonder they no wonder uh, Harry Nelson got so heavy set if that's what he was boozing on. Because that is yeah, a, just that's what this constantly is like. drinking like basically a brandy milkshake. Yeah, just like chocolate liqueur and <laughs> heavy cream. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, they recorded this album, Pussycats, and while they were recording the album, Nielsen, when he was at a party, he blew out his, his vocal cord, and he lost his voice. But he didn't want to tell John Lennon this had happened. And so he f- finished the album, but really wrecked his voice. Oh, okay. Because he was afraid that Lennon would, would disaband the project, which was probably what have happened, because it wasn't very long. Like, I think Lennon was like on his last weekend for about six months, and then he returned to Yoko Ono, back to reality, I guess. It actually, it was during this time that that um, Harry Nilsson had to renegotiate his contract with RCA Records. And they were kind of unwilling to re-sign him. They were kind of thinking about letting him go. And so he came in there, but he came in with, with John Lennon and Ringo Starr. And both of them during this meeting intimated to RCA that their Apple contracts were coming, due, were coming up pretty soon. To, they were going to finish. And they were thinking of signing with RCA. But they wouldn't sign with the RCA if Harry Nilsson wasn't part of RCA. And so that made RCA sign Harry Nilsson. But the thing was, neither John Lennon or Ringo Starr had any intention of signing to RCA. They merely said that to help Harry Nilsson get a better contract. And so he did a couple of albums after Pussycats. And they're okay. They're okay. But his voice was a bit, is a bit shot, especially on the first one. And, which I would say, but I, it's French. And I was, I'm too, too shy to say it's oh. name. And so I said creme de cacao like eight times. <laughs> you did. And I resisted going. <laughs> and, and so he did about three albums, none of them very successful. So he, when he got to time to do this album, Nielsen spelt K double N I double L double S O double N. He decided to, he really put his heart and soul into it. He wrote some really great songs. He kind of, it's kind of harkens back to his early albums like Harry and it really felt like he'd kind of turned a corner in his career. And so then, so, and RCA really believed it as well. They heard it and they thought this is really good. We're going to put a huge marketing campaign behind this. We're really going to push this album for you. You know, we're going to get you back on top, Harry. And just as they were about to roll out this, this campaign, Elvis Presley died and everything shifted at RCA records. (laughs) You know, every, every, bit of their uh, marketing dollars went towards yes all their resources all their manpower yeah went to not just you know, all their schedule and all their promotion everything just changed and yeah. all became about fulfilling a sudden insatiable insatiable demand for for Elvis Presley product and that pretty much sums up RCA ever since then really that's been their raison d'etre to, as, a, as a company they can do no wrong because they they have uh, Elvis Presley to fall back on, and they, they can always dig something out or repackage the they old won't stuff. Forever though, no, they won't. They won't forever. But I mean, nowadays the music business is so moribund and pretty much dead that it really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, to be fair, the people buying Elvis Presley yeah albums still yeah are probably the people who are most likely to continue buying albums until they die. Yeah, right, yeah. like. But that's the other true. thing is, it's definitely a fan base that's dying out. <laughs> I don't know about that, because there's always Elvis fans. I mean, maybe not to the degree that there once was, but I don't think so. there's always Elvis fans. All right. 
Let's leave Nielsen behind. As much as I love Harry Nelson. Nielsen Schmilson. <laughs> Very good, dear. Thank you. Let's listen instead to Otis Clay. This is, uh, I have this on an album called Atlantic Unearthed, Soul Brothers, which came out in 2006. And this is Otis Clay with the song Pouring Water on a Drowning Man. Let's give it a listen. It's a very good song. And we've talked about Otis Clay before. We, we played him very early on in, in our... In oh, did our, we? That's, that must be why it sounds familiar. Mm, his voice anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't... We didn't play the song, but we played... But his song. name sounds familiar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like Private Nuff, no, Judy that's, Bell. That's William Bell. But it's Judy Clay. Judy Clay and William yeah. Bell. Yeah. Uh, no, he did the song. He did the song. Oh, I can't remember the title of it now. I have to go back in time. Sorry, everyone. I... Sorry. I apologize. I can't remember. My mind is blown. I had a really busy work day today, so I, I'm just barely hanging in here. Yeah, well, okay, let's move on. We know. Yeah, that, well, just before we move on from Otis Clay, I just want to say there's a there's a really good documentary that I, I saw recently, like within six months to a year, and it was kind of a reunion documentary of of Memphis 
soul artists kind of centered around high records, but also also had some stocks people as, involved as well. And it had Mavis Staples in it. It had, but it had also had Otis Clay. So I was really happy to see him because he's not someone that you'd go, you know, oh, they're going to have these famous people. They're going to have to have Otis Clay there. You're like, oh, Otis Clay, this is a real, <laughs> real obscure act. But, <laughs> but I guess there, a lot of them are gone now. Yeah, but it's anyway, it's really good. I wish I could remember the name of it. I'm sorry, I can't. But it was quite a good documentary. I'm sure if you look up like stat, you know, high records, maybe a Staples documentary, it would it'll it'll point point you towards it. It was on Netflix a while ago. I think Mary's gonna look it up. So maybe we'll listen to the next song, which is by the Supremes, and this song is called "Going Down for the Third Time" uh, from 1967. Here is the Supremes. <laughs> think of the Supremes going down for the third time. Oh, it's called going down for the third time? Yep. I liked it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was like looking at my notes and I was like, wait, which top five are we on? Because I didn't write down which they were. Oh, okay. I just have like five songs, five songs, five songs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I liked it. It's a good song. It's a very it's good, very good song. And it's a B-side hmm. to their 1967 single Reflections, which I always find fascinating when the singles are so, the B-sides are so very, very good. It's just... 
Yeah, it's a great song. We'll just throw it on this B-side. I'm sure it's also on an album as well, but it's uh, very good. Very good stuff. And Mary was able to unearth this uh, the uh, documentary we're talking about. What was it called, Mary? Uh, Take Me to the River. There you go. came out in 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has um, a lot of the old old timers, Stax mm-hmm. people like... like um, Terrence Howard. No, Terrence Howard is not an old timer. The Road Sisters. <laughs> the Road Sisters. I guess they're like a backing group of singers, but William Bell is in it from Stax. Uh, William Bell, who we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, Private Number. Mm-hmm. And You Don't Miss Your Water. You Don't Miss Your Water. Until your well runs dry. Like his first big hit. Why do you say that? That was just an interesting idea. Metaphor? He was like, he read Dune. He was like, you know, <laughs> guys are right. You don't miss your water until you don't have any more of it. Or until you're on Dune. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, and Otis Clay is in it. Bobby Blue Bland. Quite a few. And it made Bobby me Blue Bland? Yeah. Bobby Blue? Bobby Blue Bland. Bobby Blue Bland. Yeah. Bobby Blue Bland. Yep. Bobby Blue Bland? <laughs> That guy? Bobby Blue Blood? That guy? One. Him? Yep. I love him. I love <laughs> Bobby Blue Blood. It's my favorite. All of his songs. Uh, yeah. Written by? Bobby Blue Blood. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, that guy. <laughs> Glad you love him so much. Mm-hmm. He's great. <laughs> so it's a, it's a pretty good movie. Although it does have some rapping in it, which I don't know. I'm okay with rapping, but I always find like songs that have like people singing and then someone comes in rapping. I was mm. <laughs> she's kinda of corny. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> well that we we just watched a little bit of the trailer for it. Yeah. It did have this cute little kid rapping. Uh, His name was Lil Peanut. Yeah, that's right. Which I think is very good. He was cute, but I'd rather listen to Otis Clay just singing by himself. He doesn't need some little kid interrupting him. It was his grandson probably. <laughs> his grandson. Yeah, that'd be good if it was. I'm pretty know. sure it was his grandson. Really? Yeah. Why do you say that? Because he's in a documentary. Yeah. He's like seven. Yeah. His name's Lil Peanut. <laughs> he's like absolutely his grandson. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And they sang together and then they high-fived. That's true. They did high-five. They did. Pre-COVID. Yeah. Well, 2014. <laughs> definitely pre-COVID. Yeah. That's what you know. From now on, I'll be able to tell when. When I watch movies now or TV yeah. shows, people talk really close. It makes me so anxious. Is that right? Yeah. It's <laughs> funny. Because I spend my whole day, and not so much anymore, but I spend my whole day being like, six feet apart. <laughs> old people yeah. I'm bad at remembering that so bad at listening to directions i don't think it's bad at, bad at listening i think it's bad at remembering both <laughs> some of them are some of them are bad at remembering yeah some of them are just bad at listening though yeah, and sorry. you know the ones they're just who are bad at listening they like to be purposefully perverse yes jerks I like to tell you about how china created it all right <laughs> created it yeah <coughs> excuse me <laughs> China created it. All right. Yeah. That's what I say, too. All right. Then I leave. So, well, it's nice talking to you, but I'm uh, pretty busy. So, I'm never going to talk to you again. Bye. Yeah, I had some person at work was telling me, he says, I've been saying this for five or six years, but they're just trying to take money away from us. They're just trying to make a cash- cashless society. And so, this is the perfect opportunity oh, for them I to get rid of money. I was stuff about that today, too. Mm. And I was like, to which I said, well... I said, you're too old to remember having to go to the bank, you know, like on a Friday. Yeah. You'd have to go to the bank. You'd have to go there before the bank closed. Mm-hmm. They'd show up, fill out your stupid little form, yeah. bring it up to the teller, give it to the teller. Then you get some money out of the bank mm-hmm. and you hope that what you got would last you the weekend because yeah. you weren't going to get any more money the whole rest of the weekend. Mm-hmm. So plan. So you get some money, you put it in your wallet, and then, you you know, you'd have to think about that money the whole time, the whole weekend. Yeah. Like you may go into Vancouver, you may be thinking I'll go do some record shopping. Mm-hmm. That's all the money you had. 
Like, you can't How go are you getting to, home? Yeah. You can't go to the bank on Sunday. <laughs> what are you going to do on Sunday? Yeah. If someone phone says, we want to go see a movie, be like, oh, I wish I could, but I spent all my money yesterday going to buy records in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So, like, the idea to me, like, we're going to be complaining about that there's ATMs and, and stuff. Like, come on. What yeah. do you want to go back to that for? I know. I hate having cash, too. Like, at work, whenever I buy something, I get it back in cash, right? Okay. Because it, like, doesn't come as part of my paycheck, so it's not part of my paycheck. I'm being reimbursed. Yeah. Which they do with cash. So, I have all this stupid cash all the time. I'm like, oh. So, like, everywhere I'm going now, I'm like, do you guys take cash? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, take this. I want it. But I always ask. Some, some places aren't right now. But... Yeah, some places aren't so keen on it. But that's just proof that that the deep state is trying to uh, blah, blah, blah. Ugh. I know. Then you're just listening to this person talking this absolute insanity, and you're just nodding. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But you don't want to be rude to the, this person. Like, so you just kind of, all right. I don't know what this is getting you. Like, yeah. what is this getting you? Yeah. And they're like, they're trying to, they're just trying to track us. Like, do you have a smartphone? <laughs> <laughs> nope. I don't carry a smartphone. Well, then they're not tracking you. Yeah. I know, but all these people who were like, oh, the vaccine, they're trying to put a microchip in you to control you. Like, what? Do you know? No, not. Yeah. Do you know what microchips are? Like, microchips are. Like, the ones you put in dogs are really big. You have to use, like, the biggest needle to get them in there. Yeah. And all that, literally, all that they do is store a number. It's, like, an eight-digit number that they store. Yeah. And you scan it with this, like, ancient piece of technology. And then it you it has a number come up, and then you have to call a company so that they tell you what that number means. Okay. Like, it's not stored. Nothing's stored in the microchip. Everything's stored in computers. Yeah. Because they're too small to hold anything. And they don't have the technology to, like, have a thing survive in your body that, like, can track you or control your brain. Yeah. What? Are you kidding me? You know how big phones are, right? Like, they're that big for a reason still. (laughs) Stupid. People are so dumb. Also, like, you, you willingly carry a smartphone around. Yeah. Well, not everybody. No, but, like, most of those people do. Yeah. 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 But it's not tracking me. I took out the SIM card. It's all pretty silly. <laughs> Unless, dear listener, you believe this, in which case, you are absolutely right. No, you're not. Carry on no, with your beliefs. No, don't do that. Let us be your friends. Read, like, a single article. We we, we are on your That's side. Not published by, like, Breitbart. Breitbart? Breitbart. Isn't it EI? I think it's IE. Sorry, EI. EI is Breitbart. IE is E sound in German, and EI oh, is an German. I sound. That's a clue. So it's E comes second, then just right. an E. Yep. Yeah. That's the uh, that's the rule. Right. Mary, next song. Okay. What is it? I'm gonna end your rant. Oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Before I start walking away. All right, Mary. <laughs> tell you really care about this, but I'm just gonna be over here. I'm uh, saying things that are logical. Anyway. <laughs> I'm gonna be over here with my my fellow QAnon friends. Ugh. PizzaGate. Ugh. All right, everybody. This is our friends, no mm-hmm. fun, with their song, I Drowned, from their cassette album, Ghost Paper Boy, in Robin's Gate Trailer Park, which came out in 1982. Once again, this is I Drowned, the most, I guess the most obvious... Drowning song. Drowning song, because no. it's called I Drowned. There's no getting back from it, mm-hmm. folks. This song is about someone who drowned. That's true. Here we go. Didn't want me anymore. Your anger cut me to the quick. I walked right out of your front door and headed down the freezer's creek. I pondered my sad situation. 
was plummeting through space The river ate me like a raindrop And I felt Neptune's cold embrace What Sank down to the river bottom I could not swim or grab a ledge You weren't there to see my problem You didn't even help them dredge I'd count your friends I protagonist of the song that we just heard, the narrator of the song, they drowned. But what did you think of this person's drowning, Mary? I thought the song was okay. Okay. I, th- I found the singing a little nasally. <laughs> okay. This is... But, you know, that's no fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yep. All right. I don't have much to say about it. We've talked, we've ab- talked about, no, we've fun talked about no Fun a lot. This is another album recorded in David M's parents' basement onto their beloved Ampex 4-track. Ampex 4-track, yes. And... And there you go. That's what it is. That's what it is. And that's what we're going to call it. A no fun song called I Drowned. All right, Mare. Last top five drowning songs. This is one of my favorite drowning songs. I love this song. This is The Monkees. Okay. The Monkees. The great band, The Monkees, from their 1967 album, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. And this is Going Down. Here we go. Floating in the river with a saturated liver And I wish I could forgive her But I do believe she meant it when she told me to forget it And I bet you will forget it when they find me in the morning Wet and drowned And the world gets round I'm going down I'm going down I'm coming up for air, it's pretty stuff under there Like I said, I didn't care But I forgot to leave a note And it's so hot to stay afloat I'm soaking wet without a boat And I knew I should have taken off my shoes It's front page news Going down
sleepy, wet and cold She told me to forget it nice I should have taken her advice I only want to go on home I'd gladly leave that girl alone What a way to spend the night If I don't drown, I'll die of fright My pappy taught me how to flow But I can't swim a single note He threw me in to teach me how I stayed there floating like a mama cow And now I've floated way downstream No, this has to be a dream If I could find my way to shore think of the monkeys going down oh, i thought it was a very fun song yeah yeah i liked it it's, it is a lot of fun it's a interesting song indeed and this is sort of the and i said we're gonna have a happy ending this is the happy ending this is the person who yeah. intended to drown threw himself in the water because his girlfriend broke up with him mm-hmm. wanted to drown mm-hmm. then when he jumped in the water mm-hmm. thought you know what this wasn't such a great idea yeah i'm not so into this drowning thing that's fair but it was too late mm-hmm. couldn't make it to the bank mm-hmm. got carried away by the current mm-hmm. But on the positive side, yeah. got carried down to New Orleans. Okay. Washed up on the banks of, of the river in New Orleans. Okay. And got to partake in some great nightlife in oh, New Orleans. That's great. So he kind of forgot about his girlfriend. I I uh I guess it's just because Beach Boy is California, etc. I assume that he went into the water in California. So when you're telling me he washed up in New Orleans. Yeah. But this is the monkeys. He went quite this a... is the monkeys we're talking about. Oh, it's the monkeys. I don't know why I was thinking Beach Boys. Yeah. No, the monkeys. monkeys also feel like California. They are California, you're right. So he went into the water in California and washed up in New Orleans? Yeah, there you go. I think that's (laughs) possible. You know, they spent a lot of time looking for that Northwest Passage. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just saying, this guy found it. (laughs) He found it accidentally. Yeah. Just a drunken jump in the water. He probably couldn't duplicate it. No. People would be like, well, how did you get here? He said, well, I jumped in the water in the Los Angeles Basin. They'd be like, the Los Angeles Basin and you got here? Yeah. Be like, yeah. Like, how? 
Because I don't know. I was completely drunk. He's like, I don't. And it was night. He's like, I couldn't name a single river that I was in. <laughs> Who could do that? <laughs> They're like, but like the Columbia. He's like, I don't know. It was a river. It's a. I, they all look the same. Was it the Colorado? I don't know. I told you that. The Mississippi. Like, I, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> the St. Lawrence. No, that's too far. That's too far north. <laughs> You're very cold. <laughs> So this uh, song also featured as a B-side. It wasn't on the album Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones, but it was also the B-side for Daydream Believer, which was a big, big hit. So oh, yeah. it was everyone, good for the monkeys. Everyone knows that song. Because the song Daydream Believer was written by John Stewart, not that John Stewart. I know what you were just about to say. The one from The Daily Show? You're going to say John Stewart from The Daily Show? I was going to say, no, Mary, the John Stewart from... The Daily Show. <laughs> no. Oh. From the... Uh... The Daily Show. <laughs> You just keep pausing. I know. So that I can fill it in. And I, I don't know any other John Stewart other than the was, one from the Daily Show. I was trying show. to be dramatic oh. and tell you that it's... No, I can't... Actually, the reason I was trying to be dramatic is I can't remember the name of the group that this guy was in. The Daily Show. It was not The Daily Show. Wouldn't it be funny if it was a John Stewart who's in a band called The Daily Show? It was... Yes, he was in a band called The Daily Show. No, it was... What were they called? They had like a... They had a name. They were a folk band. They did Tom Dooley. And what were they called? Man, everyone, I know you're out there, you're yelling at me, you're just saying, Dave. The Daily Show. <laughs> it's not The Daily Show. <laughs> All right, it, well, I'm lying. It was John Stewart from The Daily I'm Show. Just, I'm he saying, wrote the song Daydream Believer. If you Bel- look Day up Day John Day. Stewart, yeah. you're going to get John Stewart from The Daily Show. I know, that's a problem. That's a problem with research when people share names with someone who's really mm. famous. Or when their band shares a name with a famous object, like the American flag, the Canadian band. <laughs> that's a problem. Or we'll run into it later on, we'll talk about it in a bit. But no, he was in this big time group that was like part of like they he wasn't an original member mm-hmm. he came in a bit later but th- this group like made folk music what it was like everybody heard this band and oh, said oh th- that band yeah the daily show <laughs> <laughs> well thanks for your help mare and trying to jog my You're memory welcome. anyway i mean you know what it's not called <laughs> yeah what is it what isn't it called the daily show you're right yeah you're right so the ri- song for this the music for the song was credited to all four monkeys. It's right. the only song that is written by all four monkeys. Oh, really? And basically what they did was they, they took a song, which was called Parchman Farm, and they were jamming on it, and they kind of created their own song. And then they, th- they said, well, why don't we just like write a new melody and put new words to this song? Right. And then we could release it. And, of course, they were looking for... for uh, because the monkeys had like maybe four... They had like four stages in their career, Mayor. Okay. The first stage was the bu- the bubblegum stage. Oh, okay. When they were teeny boppers, when they right. were the teeny bopper music. But what made what made this like teeny bopper music was that it was entirely produced by other people. They did not have yeah. anything to do with writing songs. Michael Nesmith a little bit. But, you know, like Peter Tork describes like getting invited to a, a session and bringing along his banjo like, oh, I get to play on a song. And he gets there and they're like, oh, no, no, it's already been recorded. We just need your backing vocals. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, they just were like, they were just at the mercy of their producers who would just bring them in and they would just sing on the songs. Sometimes only one of them would sing on a song and the other guys wouldn't, wouldn't even be involved. Other people would do the backing vocals. And so then phase two of their career was when they decided that they didn't like this anymore. And I think they felt kind of that they're being made fun of by people who weren't taking them seriously. And some of the members of the band weren't just actors. Like Mickey Dolenz was really just an actor right. who applied to pretend to be a band, yeah. a guy in a band. It was only once he was in the band with other musicians that he kind of became interested in it as a musical project. 
And he was the pretend drummer in the band. Mm -hmm. He didn't actually play the drums when he joined the show. He wasn't even known as a singer. He just somehow became the the lead singer of the group. Right. Because probably because he couldn't play the drums. Yeah. But no, not just because of that. Because right. his voice was very good. Like he had right. a great voice for yeah. the for the, what they wanted. And so the second stage of their career, they decided we're going to take back control for ourselves. We're not going to let Don Kirshner over here push us around anymore. We're our own people. Mm-hmm. We're our own monkeys. Mm-hmm. We're a real band. Mm-hmm. We can really play our instruments. Mm-hmm. And then so they went to the producers of the show, uh, Bert Schneider and Bob Raffleson, and they said, "Hey, we don't want to just be like puppets to." Don Kirshner, we want to do our own thing. We want to have our own music. And they were like, okay, if that's what you want to do, that sounds great. Because those guys were kind of like, they were kind of like proto-hippies. Right. Bob Raffleson and Bert Schneider. And they were kind of encouraged this sort of thing. Like they thought it was kind of cool that the band were like, wanted to like be a band. Right. Like, oh, this is cool. Like they're kind of like becoming people. It's like our, our monkeys are growing up. And so then the monkeys did an album called Headquarters where they played all their own instruments. Mm-hmm. They wrote all this. They wrote most of the songs on it, and they pr- kind of co-produced it themselves. And they put out this album. And they're like, "Hey, everybody, we're a real band." And everyone said, "Cool, you're a real band." Immediately after this album, Mary, stage three, which was this real band discovered, oh my god, we have to write, record, and play our own albums. It's starring a TV show, which we also some of us, one of us also directs some of the episodes, and also tour. Yeah, we can't possibly do it all ourselves. All right, session musicians and outside songwriters, come on back in. So then they started bringing in outside songwriters again, but kind of on their own terms. And so then it became, instead of uh, Monkey A and Monkey B getting called into the studio to to do a song for these producers, yep. Monkey A and Monkey B would get their own music together, bring in their own session musicians and produce their own material. And then it would be kind of collected onto an album. There is a stage four, but I, I don't want to talk about it right now. Well, we could, if people wanted me to talk about it, I'll talk about it another time. But that's stage three, Mary. So this, okay. this was stage three. Pis- right. Pisces, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Jones came out after Headquarters. But it's not really a monkey's album the way that Headquarters was a monkey's album. Because Headquarters was a monkey album in the sense that it was them making their own ac- album. This is them covering other people's songs or, or writing their own, in this case, writing their own music for a song. And then what they did was they gave it to a, a, a staff songwriter at Cold Gems, which was the company that was producing the monkeys, named Diane Hildebrand. And they asked her to make to write some lyrics for it and give it a melody. And so that's what she did. So she wrote the lyrics about a heartbroken man who jumps, uh, drunkenly jumps into the into a river to end to end his life. And what's interesting is when Mickey Jones, Mickey Jones, when Mickey Dolenz was given this uh, song to do at the rehearsal he sang it really slowly because okay. that's what he assumed that's what it would be like just kind of a slow song yeah and Diane Hildebrand was like no faster and so he started singing a little bit faster he's like no faster and then he just started like really going and that's what she wanted she wanted this really like high high energy performance and Mary if you were a fan of the monkeys as I was a fan of the monkeys especially when I was a kid there is a performance by Mickey Dolan's of this song it's just by him it's just him by himself singing along to a backing tape of the song so it's got like a backing track and he's singing live into a microphone and it's really great because it, it's live it's him singing live so you get the excitement of him singing this really fast song also dancing around in front of this curtain and just like ham it up in general and it's pretty pretty darn great and if i remember i, I will maybe uh, if i find it i'll put a clip of that on on our website so there you go mary those were five songs about drowning cool 
Did you enjoy those songs? I did. You came out of it thinking, you know what? Drowning's not so bad. Mm, no, I don't think that at you all. You thought, you know what? I wouldn't mind drowning. Well, no. We may end up in New Orleans, though. <laughs> Never been to New Orleans. That'd be kind of cool. I always wanted to go. Is that right? Seems interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it seems kind of hot. Oh, definitely. It's a swamp. Yeah. And I just imagine that everyone there eats red beans and rice. No, their food is very good. Oh, okay. It's like... Are you saying red beans and rice isn't good? Yes. <laughs> you hate the you hate the cuisine of New Orleans, then? No. New Orleans has a lot of, like, Cajun cuisine. Oh, okay. Like... Red beans and rice. No, like gumbo. Okay. And, like, a lot of, um... I think that, like, seafood boils are around there. Okay. I think and they're also in, like, maritimes areas. Or poi... Po' boys. Po' boys sandwiches. Also, yeah. yeah. Those I look good. The, yeah. Yeah, totally. Those look good. Jambalaya looks good, too. Jambalaya does look good, yeah. Duncan was making... He was really into making curry... No, sorry. Gumbo last year. Okay. And you have to make, like... You have to make a roux. Yeah. But then it has to get... You have to, like, keep cooking it until it's, like, mm -hmm. dark. Yeah. And that's, like, the base. Then you burn it. Then you roux it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you want to move... Oh, wait. Actually, I had a suggestion oh, for something okay. about drowning. Okay, okay. Well, I don't know if it quite fits, but I think All right. there are some... Sock it to me. I think there are some lyrics that fit. Yeah. Which is... Um, Danger of the Water by Future Heads. By Future Heads, okay. Not I like that's a, I like the fact that that's a <laughs> I like the fact that that's a suggestion. Uh -huh. That is my least favorite song by the Future Heads. What? Yeah. It's so good. It's too slow. You're wrong. <laughs> you're you're wrong. It's so good. Such a good song. Uh-huh. Well, maybe you should do top 5 songs about robots. Okay. Or top 5 songs about yeah, working. Yeah. Top 5 songs about robots would be good. Mm -hmm. so we get a uh, robot by, by the future heads. Yeah. We get the robot song by the by Flight of the Concords. Yes, yep. We could could we could we put computers into it? No. There is I think there's iRobot by the Alan Parsons project. Okay. I believe they did a thing about robots. I might mm -hmm. be wrong. Mm -hmm. I'd have to look that one up cuz I'm I'm really I'm not drawing from my own collection there. I'm just drawing from memory. Right. Oh, you know it would be good. What? Uh sticks. Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. Oh. Domo, 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 domo. It's a terrible song, but yeah, still, it, it fits. It fits. It'd be fun. Yeah. It's like a real goofy. Oh man, I'm I'm excited about this robot top five list. Okay, but the other one that I was gonna suggest. Okay. Was top five songs about um, bad days at work. Okay, such as first day, first day by the Future Heads. Okay. And Hey Julie by um, Fountains of Wayne. Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, that's a good one. Yep. A Manic Monday maybe by by the Bangles. I wonder if that song would fit into that. Maybe. Just another Manic Monday. Working to work by. Um, field music. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. One more. Mm -hmm. You got it. Come on, come on, Mary. Don't disappoint me. Don't let me down. <laughs> uh, it's okay. See, sometimes you gotta let it percolate. Percolate. You gotta let it percolate. Just gotta let it percolate. No, percolate. <laughs> I told you I'm not pronouncing words very well today because I I didn't have a did not have a restful day. I had a very busy day at work. I had to load a a container, so my back is sore. And my back was already sore to start the day, but now it's now it's a little sore. Okay, let's move on to our next top five list, Mary. This is another one, another obvious one that I you just you just think, well, I'm only adding to a, a mountain of this, but this is top five songs <laughs> about mountains. Funny that I said mountain. I didn't mean to, but there you go. I gave it away. Top five songs about mountains. Yeah, let's start. Let's start with our first mountain song, Mary. What is it? This is Donovan, and okay. the song is called "There Is a Mountain," mm -hmm. coming from his album "Mellow Yellow." Another song, another album from 1967, just like the monkeys going down. Let me look back here. Are there other ones from 67? Eh, doesn't matter. Okay, this is from 1967. This is uh, Donovan. There is a mountain. Let's give it a listen, everybody. Mm -hmm. 
pretty darn good it's a lot of fun so it was okay it was okay yeah not my favorite oh but not terrible oh i thought it's i think it's, i think it's a really good song almost a top 10 hit for donovan i think it got to number 11 oh really yeah lyrics, congratulations donovan the lyrics referencing a buddhist saying oh, okay donovan was a big uh a big accolade of the maharishi maharishi oh okay in fact he spent some time at rishikesh with the beatles oh Okay. During their sojourn there, yes. before they did the the Beatles, and he taught uh, John Lennon the finger picking technique that he uses uses a lot on on um, on the White Album. Songs like Hey Prudence and Julia uh, have that uh, picking style that, uh, and probably a tuning style, a particular way of tuning for the, for it as well that Donovan passed on while they were there. Paul McCartney though says that he already knew that technique and that Donovan did not teach him that technique. But Donovan was friends with Paul McCartney, and in fact, he contributed the line uh, about the Sea of Green and whatever it was. <laughs> Can't remember. You know, I'm terrible at lyrics. Guys. That iconic line. That iconic line about it in is. Yellow Submarine. Whatever <laughs> 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 it is, that iconic line. Oh, that everyone knows. Like people, people who are like big Beatles fans, which I would consider myself to be a sort of a Beatles fan. Uh, yeah, you think I would remember it, but you know what? I'm really bad at memorizing remembering lyrics. We I've, know. I've said that before. So. We've uh, we've uh, all listened to completely Beatles. <laughs> I'm not shocking anybody with my inability to remember things. All right, <coughs> I think that's all I want to say about Donovan. He's kind of a cool I think guy. Everyone knows Donovan. I would think so. I mean, you'd know like Mellow Yellow and Sunshine Superman. Like yeah. those are big hit songs. He's like him. one of the those bands that you hear when you're eating dinner in a restaurant. He, he was a single person, not a band. What? He was not a band. He was just yeah, a guy. I know. 
Donovan. Donovan Leach. One of those single name artists, a la Madonna. A la Madonna, that's right. Yeah. And Rihanna. Mm-hmm. And? Morrissey. Okay. What else? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going oh. along. We're getting the top five together here, Mary. Oh, my goodness. Um... <laughs> Lulu. Lulu. Yeah. And uh, who else? One more. We need one more. Do we? I thought we had some. Madonna. Madonna. Or Donovan. Donovan. Oh, yeah. Donovan, of course. Yeah. Yeah, he's part of it. Okay. That's good. Top five. Oh, I'm loving this. I'm loving we're getting all these great top fives together. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know what's funny about this song is that it inspired the song by the Allman Brothers called Mountain Jam. Okay. Which you can hear if you if you are a lucky oh. owner. Sorry. Yeah. Other bad or other songs about... Um, bad Days at Work? Bad Days at Work. Yep. Step Into My Office Baby by Bones Fashion. Ah, very nice. Yes. Pew. We just uh, fist bumped over that one. Nice job. Very exciting. You got the top five. Top five. Uh, yeah, Mountain Jam, which is, if you have, uh, if you're lucky enough, Mary, do you have the Omen Brothers at uh, the Fillmore West? Or I think it's Fillmore East, maybe one of those, somewhere, somewhere, one of the Fillmores they're playing at. There's a 34-minute version of Mountain Ooh. Jam on there. Sounds terrible. No, it's actually quite exciting. I listened to it a little while ago because I was curious uh, about the connection to Mountain Jam. Or mount, there's a mountain, which, by the way, in no part of the song, it seemed to me, until the very end, does it reference there is a mountain. So if I wanted to listen to that, mm-hmm. I could... Um, from here, yeah. drive to work, yeah. stop my car, yeah. get out, work a full day, yeah. come back up to my car, yeah. get in my car, turn on my car, drive home, yeah. turn off my car, yeah. go inside, go back out the next day, turn on my car, and then I was still four more minutes of listening <laughs> to that song. So It's a good song, though. Okay. I don't, you know, like, hey, so, like, music from that time period was not designed to be listened that way, though. Right. No, I understand that. You know, like, that was an album time, and people... People not only identified themselves by the records they owned, but they listened to them in a, a very intimate way that's yeah. different than now. Like they didn't, they didn't have like most people didn't have like record players in their car. Mm-hmm. Eight tracks might have existed at that time, but they never really they never really caught on the way that say cassettes did later on, and because partly because you you couldn't record on them, and then you know it was just like yeah it was just a sort of different listening time. Music was a lot more concentrated on. So the idea of listening to like a thirty-four minute long jam was not crazy. But it is crazy that it's 34 minutes long, and it barely references the song it's supposedly based on. Let's move on to our second song, Mary. This is Neil Young. This song is Sugar Mountain. Now, this version, it's going to sound familiar to the version. If you have Decade, the Neil Young collection. Do you have Decade, Mary? Nope. The three-album set? Nope. This song is on I have there. one Neil Young song on my phone. Oh, which is, wait, Cinnamon Girl? Nope. Oh, Only Love Can Break Your Heart? Yep. That's a good one. But Cinnamon Girl is really good, too. You should get that song on there. Okay. I'll send it your way. All right. So, so Sugar Mountain is on Decade, but this is a different Sugar Mountain. This is a different version. This is, this is from him playing at the Riverboat, which was a club in Toronto. It was recorded in 1969. So let's give a listen to this previously unreleased version of Sugar Mountain. Uh, this is from Neil Young's Archives, Volume 1, 1963 to 1972, that came out in 2009. So here we go, everybody. Twenty on 
Too soon. 
markers and the colored balloons You can't be twenty on Sugar Mountain Though you're thinking that you're leaving there Too soon We're back. Mary, what did you think of uh, Neil Young? It's a nice song. It's a very nice song, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it was never like really recorded in a way. You know, it, it these are these are live recordings, but there's no like studio recording of him playing the song, like no studio recording of him playing it with a band. What's interesting is it, on archives, this this uh, collection, which Neil Young has been doing this for a long time. This is the, f- the first one that came out in 2009. The cover is 1963 to 1972, and he has been promising us Archives Volume 2 since 2009. It is now 2020, and it still has not come out, although apparently it was supposed to come out earlier this year, got pushed back because of the quarantine, so it is supposed to come out this year. That's, that's a good thing. He just keeps finding more stuff to put on it. That's the problem. He can never quite make up his mind. But on this uh, set of archive stuff, there's three different versions. The first being a kind of a demo version that was recorded in 65 at Electra Records. And that version is kind of sped up, as if it's like a pop song. Okay, okay. Then the second live version is, is was recorded at Canterbury House in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1968. And that might be the version that is on Decade. But there's also a later one that was recorded in 71, I think. And that might be the version as well. I'm not, I'm not absolutely certain. So apparently Young composed this song on his 19th birthday, which is November 12th is his birthday, in 1964, while on tour with his band, The Squires, in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Hmm. And so it is said that he has said the lyrics are about his youth in Winnipeg, Manitoba. However, Joni Mitchell has a different story. She claims that Neil Young wrote this song later, two years later, and it was a reaction to him getting... Uh, that he couldn't play in the teeny bopper clubs around Toronto anymore. So these would have been clubs that adults couldn't go into. So once you turn 21, you could not go into these clubs. Oh, interesting. Because they're strictly for teenagers, teenage girls. But the rest of his band, the Squires, were young enough to play in these clubs. So they would still play in these clubs, but he wasn't allowed to play with them. Right. And so he wrote this song about kind of missing out on this this element and maybe also have a certain nostalgic part of it as well. So I don't know if that's true. That's what Joni Mitchell said. It's an interesting idea. What's that? Like a youth dance hall? Well, yeah. There was a place in Surrey when I was a kid called Bumpers, and it was a youth, yes. youth club. You've mentioned Bumpers I've before. mentioned Bumpers before, yeah. And so, yeah, you would go there, and they'd just serve pop mm-hmm. and hot dogs and things like that. And then they had a very small dance floor. Right. That if 10 of you were dancing on, forget about it. Yeah. And then there was seating around the dance, dance floor. The dance floor was almost like, it was almost like a miniature roller rink. Oh, okay. It had like tall walls around it and it was oh. like a shape like an oval. Weird. And then you sat at tables around it and then when you wanted to dance, you would hmm. go into this area and you'd dance in there. And of course, my friends and I, we went there, we would only dance to like the new wave songs. We wouldn't right. dance to anything else. Well, sure. Because we were snobs and, yeah. and jerks. And then there was funny, there was like rival looks as well. Right. So there was a group of people who came, they all dressed in overalls. Okay, same. All of them. Me too. Is that right? I'm you in like, that group. You like overalls? Yeah. I I'm wanting to get overalls for a while. Okay. They're expensive. Is that right? You should ask for them for Christmas or a birthday. 
And then, and then there was our group. Right. We were who no, all wore Doctor Who scarves. No, we did not wear Doctor Who scarves. <laughs> what we wore were backwards dress shirts. Okay. With with cardigan sweaters. Okay. So then your collar was quite high at the front. Right. And yeah, it was a very interesting look developed by one of the girls that was part of the group friend group that I was in. She developed this look because she won a uh, shopping spree okay. at a local mall right. in North Delta called Scottsdale Mall. Woo! <laughs> Shout out, Scottsdale Mall. So she won this shopping spree at a mall that was cool. basically for old people. Yeah. It's a mall. It's yeah. a, you know, small, small mall. I mean, this was pre... Um, there was no Le Chateau at this mall, no right? There was no urban planet. Yeah, there was there nothing was like no... that. Yeah. What's that terrible store that young people shop at? Forever 21? Nope. It's gone now, of course, but... No, the one that's for like alternative teens. Oh, I don't know. I know the one you mean. I, I know what you mean, but I don't know the name of it. Spencer's. Oh, Spencer's? Yeah. Isn't that just like a gift store? Gift store? No, you can buy like lots of stuff there. Bongs. <laughs> dildos. As gifts. Yeah. Yeah, they're, I guess. They're hilarious gifts. Uh, but you didn't expect a bong. Probably, probably t-shirts that say FBI, federal body inspector. <laughs> no, female body inspector. <laughs> you know? What? Why? Well, that's the question now is why haven't you got me that shirt? I would like to become a female body inspector. And apparently, that is an actual job that has a shirt attached to it. If you want to look like a creepo. <laughs> Can you imagine seeing an adult wearing a shirt like that? I would call the police immediately. Like, excuse me? What are you doing wearing a shirt like that? Just do my job, it's ma'am. Like, ma'am? It's like that episode of, yeah. uh, of Community where... Pierce walks in and he's like, oh, well, something great happened to me over Christmas break. He's wearing a hat that says, or he's wearing a t-shirt or a hat that says world's best grandpa. And people are like, oh, Pierce, you became a grandpa. And he's like, what? No, I discovered ironic (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts. Pierce being the old man. Yes. And anyway, so she won this spree. Right. Yep. So she went on this shopping spree around the mall and she just Mm -hmm. had to pick up like the, she tried to find cool stuff. Yeah. But... So she had like like a Japanese kimono and all these kind of weird things, but yeah. also she got all these blouses because yeah. that's all they sold. Well, yeah, because it was probably all like uh, old Phillips. Yeah, like stuff like that, right? Yeah. And so tip-top tailors and things. And so she yeah. just went to all these places, you know, uh, Smart Set or whatever, and she just bought little, the bay. a ton of corny stuff. There was yeah. no bay. This is too too small a mall for the oh, bay to be an anchor oh, okay. tenant. Yeah. Zeller's was the anchor right. uh, tenant of this store, Oof. which is kind of a... Yeah, Zeller's is your anchor store. That really, that really, uh, really says what the mall is. Yeah, you know? yeah, small, small town mall. Yeah, you went a long, you went a long way away to do to go other places to, mm-hmm. to not go to Scottsdale Mall. Was what you did. So then, um, so yeah, so she, so then she developed this idea that she had all these blouses that it would be great if she, it'd be better if she turned them around so they weren't the buttons buttoned up was at the back, and if she wore a cardigan sweater, it would hide that fact that the that the collar was at the back. And then it, it just looked like a high color. It looked quite nice. It was actually a very smart it, look. Yeah, it sounds it sounds interesting. Yeah, it was it's a smart look. Bit. So that's how we would dress. So then yeah. we like stood out as our own group. Right. Of people. So someone who was part of the, the overall mm-hmm. thing now is some, telling their kid about bumpers yeah. and saying, and there was a group of kids there and they all weirdly wore their collars backwards yeah. and wore cardigan sweaters, mm-hmm. which must have been really hot because it was like we were dancing in a club yeah. in the summertime, which is true. It was really hot. Mm-hmm. But if you took off your cardigan sweater, you revealed the fact that you were strangely wearing a shirt backwards yeah. so you're kind of exactly. stuck it was kind yeah. of a very limited thing yeah. i remember another time these people came and they were all dressed like spies oh okay they all had pea jackets and yeah. white turtlenecks and they looked really smart and also wearing sunglasses even though it was nighttime and i thought that looked really smart and yeah, it was a different time for for stuff like that people were 
I mean, everyone dresses in styles and things, but it just feel it very, it's very individual, and and no one because no one really knew what the heck they were doing. They, everyone wanted to be different, but there was like the the mainstream styles of the time, which were very rooted not in the neon eighties of of popular imagination now, but in more in the kind of late seventies looks. You know, so blouses were popular, tight jeans, small purses, small leather purses, small leather jackets. That was kind of the look of the time, and so everyone was trying to get away from that. You know. But anyway, oh, did you? Here's the other thing interesting thing about Sugar Mountain, mm-hmm. is that it's a it's a tramp term, like a hobo term, uh, for an imaginary place that that they were that would uh, kind of like paradise. Right. It's full of like a bunch of great stuff. Yeah. Like unlimited cigar ends or whatever. I can't imagine what mm-hmm. what they would find as a great thing. But you know what I mean. All right. Uh, wait. I was gonna make a joke. Okay. Trying to find. Ah, I don't know. I was trying to. I was trying to find information about the different gangs from the Warriors. Okay. So that I could say, oh, and then there's one group who wore. That one thing that the that group from the Warriors wore. You're thinking of the Baseball Furies who had wear like yeah, makeup. Yeah, that was. I just couldn't think of any. I was like, I know that there were some who wore like yeah. specific things. Yeah, that was that. Group. And then there was one group of people who would come to bumpers and they always wore baseball outfits and roller skates. <laughs> had like kiss. And there was another group that came. And they they dressed like Egyptians. They had like Egyptian. Uh, that's another group that looked like. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, that's a movie I want to show Duncan. The Warriors. Yeah. Because it's damn good. It is, but you can't find it anywhere. Really? Yeah, it's hard to find. It's not streaming anywhere. Well, you'll have to invite him to come down to Uncle David's and we'll watch it there on the yeah. BT. I guess that that's the only way to watch the movie The Warriors. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's go on to our, our uh, fourth song, right? This is our fourth song? Yep. No, third song. I could pay $4 to watch it. Seems excessive. Donovan. Yeah, though, this is our this is our third song, Mary. I got a, I suddenly had a panicky feeling that I had forgotten the uh, to go do a fifth song, but no, it's okay. It's top five, everybody. Still top five. Let's go to our third song, sweetie. Okay. This is uh, In Spiral Carpets. Okay. From 1990, from their Island Head EP. Okay. This song is called Biggest Mountain. Let's give it a listen, everybody.
Think of Biggest Mountain. I like the song. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's fun. That's good. Yeah, in Spiral Carpet, it's kind of the undersung. I don't want to give them heroes. That's kind of overblowing it, but an undersung band from Manchester, the so-called late '80s '90s scene in Ma- Manchester, was given the sobriquet Madchester. Isn't that crazy? It was very oh. much. Er, all, Is all that the... because um, of Mads Mikkelsen? No, it was it had nothing oh. to do with Mads Mikkelsen. Very good okay. guess. Thanks. Probably not known at this time, though. This was late 80s, early 90s. Right. It wasn't even... I don't think he'd even done the Pusher trilogy yet for oh, wow. uh, for that guy. Huh. That director. You know that guy? That director, you know. That guy? Mm-hmm. I know him. The one who directed Drive and mm-hmm. a bunch of other Mads Mikkelsen films like Bronson and... Mm-hmm. No, Daily... that's, not, that's not Mad Mikkelsen. The sorry. Daily Show? <laughs> that's right. That's the director's name is The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about... Wait, did you say... What movies did you say? Drive. Oh. Neon Demon. Only God Forgives or what it's called. He's got one of those like three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jean-Luc Godard. Nope. There you go. I like that you turned Jean-Luc Picard into Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> oh, Nicholas Winding Rapin. There you go. There we go. Nice job. Good catch. Thank you. Thanks. Saving your dad over here. I'm From now on, I'm not even bothered trying to think of names of people. Let's turn it over to Mary. Yeah, and I'll say The Daily Show <laughs> before saying Nicholas Winding Rapin. So unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, they these guys were like kind of forgotten about in in the rush of of that time. The Stone Temple, uh, Stone, Tem- <laughs> the Stone, the uh, Stone Roses were were big. Mm-hmm. Happy Mondays, inexplicably large. Even the Stone Roses to me were like in- inexplicably large. People loved that band, and I'm here in Canada. I was kind of like, eh, can't really sing very well. I don't get it. Happy Mondays, can't really sing very well. I don't get it. But people in England were just losing their crap. If you read Enemy magazine or Enemy newspaper at that time, like New Musical Express, you heard all about these groups and you're like, okay, I guess they're great. I better buy them and find out. What? Also, Jean-Luc Godard yeah. is a guy. He's a director. He's oh, a Jean-Luc new... Godard. Is yeah. that his real name? He's a French New Wave director. Yeah, he yeah. He directed Breathless. Breathless. Yeah, yeah. I know who he is. That's I why just... I said Jean-Luc Godard. I thought, I didn't think his name was Jean-Luc Godard. I thought, because yeah. it makes me think of Jean-Luc Picard, the uh, character oh. from Star Trek The Next Generation. Jean-Luc Godard. Breathless. 
And also Alphaville. Okay. And others. I've only seen Breathless. I saw another one. Uh, La Vie. My Life to Live? My Life to Live, yeah. It has, I can't think of the name. La, La Vie something. In, uh, that's very good as well. Cool. Very good as well. Okay, let's move on to our next song, sweetie. Okay. Oh, I'll tell you the one famous person that came out of the whole whole uh, Inspiral, Inspiral Carpets thing. Though. Oh, Inspiral Carpets, yep. Their drum technician. Really? His name was, ready for this? John Stewart. Noel Gallagher. Big, big, big wig in Oasis. Oh. He was a songwriter and second lead singer in Oasis. Oh, okay. Good for him. Yeah. Everyone else in the Charlatan, or everyone else in uh, Inspiral Carpets, nothing. Yeah. This didn't quite catch on. Mm-hmm. They put out a few albums. They put like four albums out. Of which I bought the first two. Then I kind of lost interest. Yeah. That's how it goes. But here's a group that I never, or a person I never lost interest in, Mary. Our fourth song. Yes. This is Prince. Okay. And The Revolution. Okay. From his eighth album, Parade, which came out in 1986. This song is Mountains. That's why it's in this list. Let's give it a listen, everybody.
And we're back. Mary, I'm not sure what you think of Prince. I'm not sure if you're a fan of Prince. I am not really. Okay. I don't I could not name a single song by Prince. How about Mountains? I could name I could not name two songs by Prince. Okay. <laughs> I could name Mountains now, I guess, because I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Um and you know what? Yeah. I didn't like the song very much. Oh really? No. I don't know. I I've never had much interest in Prince. Mm. I don't know why. Eighties. Yeah, probably. He's really his sound is very eighties. Yeah. The whole thwacking drums and all the rest of that. Yeah, that's true enough. But, like, he's never been someone that I've been like, oh, I'm interested in yeah. learning more about Prince and hearing more yeah. of Prince's music. Yeah, I I mean, this is my favorite time period for Prince. I mean, I kept buying his stuff up to a certain point. I think I bought Crystal Ball, the three the three CD set, which is very long. I bought Emancipation, which is another big set, which is also very long. And I kind of, those kind of, like, sort of turned me off of him. I did buy some later stuff like Rainbow Children or whatever, but... It was kind of hard to get back into him when to kind of jump off a musician, as like especially someone you really liked a lot. I mean, not only did I buy his albums, but I still have all of his maxi singles, like the full, like the album-sized twelve-inch singles. Right. I still have all of those, uh, you know, through up up to up to uh, Love Sexy. I still have a bunch of his forty-fives, which I bought at the time. So I was a big fan, but for whatever reason, yeah, we it came to a point where I just kind of. It was around the time, like the whole Warner Brothers thing, where he got mad at them and he was writing "Slave on His Cheek" and stuff. You know, it's so much like distraction from what the music yeah. and stuff. It just kind of lost lost me. That's hard, right? Like you want, you just want to hear some good music. Yeah. Sometimes you know, yeah. like you don't really want all the theatrics. Yeah. But the other thing is, like, music is created by people. Yeah. You know, people have emotions and sure. have reactions to stuff like that. Exactly. Too, yeah. Right? So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But for me, this, you know, it just yeah. I was probably already kind of starting to lose interest in what he was what he was doing. I he was going in directions that I just really wasn't that interested in, and uh, so you know it just kind of worked that way anyway. But this al- this album I think is his best album by far. This was actually the soundtrack album for his second film, which was called Under the Cherry Moon, which he directed. I don't think he wrote it, but he starred in it. He directed it. He took over from the direction. He took over the director's chair when the original director left the project. And so he directed it, and it was a ginormous failure. Critically, critically, like critics hated it. Yeah. Audiences didn't go see it, and didn't make any money. Lost money. But I'll tell you right now, I saw it in the theater. Mm. I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought it was a lot of fun. This movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know why everyone hates it. Well, I know why everyone hates it because it came out after Purple Rain. Right. It's the same reason everybody hated Around the World in a Day, which is a great album that came out after Purple Rain. Yeah. But Purple Rain was such a huge, ginormous, massive, mega hit album that it was impossible for him to like follow it up with anything people would like. Right. So basically, Around the World in a Day was sort of like a palate cleanser album. He took it in a kind of a totally different direction than, than Purple Rain. It has a totally different sound than Purple Rain. It's mm-hmm. a psychedelic album. has kind of longer songs on it. And he was just went in a different direction because he knew that no matter what he did, people would wouldn't like it, you know. And it's the same thing with Under the Cherry Moon. It's a different movie than than um, it's a different movie than Purple Rain. Purple Rain is is full of like it's sort of a dramatization of his life somewhat. It has live elements to it. it. Has him in the Revolution playing live, and and it takes place in Minneapolis. Under the Cherry Moon is like a it's like a loving tribute to I don't know what it's a loving tribute to. It's like a romantic comedy kind of thing where he's a gigolo in the south of france who's like you know uh seducing uh, seducing rich women and, and living off the proceeds of this behavior and, and it's him and his friend who are also kind of uh, played by jerome benton who's like one of the better parts of purple rain playing his friend and it's a really fun film like and it has 
uh, Kristen Scott Thomas in her first film role. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a great, and so I won't say it's a great movie. I was going to say it's a great movie. It's not a great movie. That's that's the wrong thing to say. But it's great fun. It's a yeah. great, it's a great fun film. And if you were like me at the time and you were a fan of Prince, then it was like more Prince. What more could you ask for? And so when this movie got like bad reviews, I was like, "What? Did we see the same movie? This that movie was was hilarious and it was fun, and it felt like you were like like doing a goof 'em up with Prince, and it was fun that way." But people didn't. People all didn't agree. It bombed financially. Yeah, that's what I said. To make it, to make money, didn't make any money. It made ten million dollars. Yeah, that's crazy. But what did it cost? Oh, it doesn't say. Yeah, I don't think it was much more than that. Maybe I think it it lost like half of it. I think it cost twenty million to make. Yeah. But to but be still. to be fair to Prince, he made Purple Rain for the for that studio. Yeah. And they made hundreds of millions of dollars from that movie. Yes. So they could afford to give him a little money to have some fun with. Mm-hmm. And quit being so crabby, everybody. It's fun. <laughs> so, uh, the album. Which which is weird because the album is called Parade. The movie is called Under the Cherry Moon. So it's weirdly not connected, which I think is kind of strange. And I don't know if it's an intentional distance itself from it or, or not. But this is probably his most collaborative album as well. So this song, for he instance... He didn't direct Purple Rain. No, I didn't say he did. Oh, sorry. I said he directed Under the Cherry Moon. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. And which was originally was also going to be directed by... Uh, actually, by a female director, but she left the project. Oh, okay. I guess they couldn't see eye to eye on what, what the tone that he wanted. It's also filmed in black and white mm. under the cherry moon. You know, it was, this wasn't designed to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It was basically like a vanity project done by a guy who had the money, the clout, and the power. A uh, cotton power, the same thing. I shouldn't have used that as my third example of third, third thing <laughs> in my list. Had the power, the clout, and the creativeness to, yeah. to make another movie and make his own kind of film. And it's just fun. Like, it's a personal project. And if you like the artist and you like the music in the movie, then why wouldn't you want to see a movie with Prince goofing around with, with another goof, Jerome Benton? Like, they're having a lot of fun. And like I say, Jerome Benton is, like, the best part of Purple Rain. He does a great job in that movie. And he does a, a really great job in um, in Under the Chain Moon. Unfortunately, he didn't continue on in an acting career because that movie got such bad reviews. But oh well. That's life, everyone. That's so life. I was going to say this was his most collaborative album. Oh, okay. Because Prince was not a collaborator by nature. That makes sense. He is a control freak by nature. He's yes. a workaholic, or he was a workaholic control freak. And, you know, his first few albums, he, he basically made them by himself. He played all the instruments himself, played drums, played bass, played guitar, played keyboards. And he just did them by himself. And then he, when he, but he wanted to play live, he needed to have a band. And so he, he formed the revolution to be his backing band to take the stuff that he did in the studio by himself and perform perform it live on stage. And then slowly, like during Purple Rain and during Around the World in a Day, he kind of incorporated them more in his working process. He still did most of it by himself, though. And then he would include them in it. But but for instance, on Parade, I was going to say Mountains, the song that we just heard, which is a very good song, despite what Mary says, was co-written by Wendy and Lisa, Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman, who were members of his band and so he brought, you know, so they were, they collaborated on that song. And there's other songs that were collaborations. He brought in a very good arranger named Claire Fisher, who came in and did these fantastic arrangements on Parade. And then, for whatever reason, they started working on another album, which was going to be called Crystal Ball. And it was even more collaborative than Parade. It had even more input from his from his backing band in it, from the Revolution. And for whatever reason, Prince got cold feet, and he pulled the plug on that album, and he disbanded the revolution, fired all the members of the band. His next album, which is called Sign of the Times, which is a very good album, but was done basically solo by him. It does have a little bit, it does incorporate a little bit of, of Crystal Ball into its album, and also has a live track of the band playing 
But the rest of the album is just him by himself. And I do, I don't know. I do, th- do you feel it's kind of unfortunate that he got rid of, especially Wendy and Lisa, who are really creative? I, f- I think it's uh, unfortunate that he disbanded the revolution. But there you go. You can't, uh, you can't tell people what to do. It's true. Especially when they're in the past and it's already been done. Yeah. That makes it even harder. True enough. So let's move on to Mary, our final mountain song. All right. This song is... Uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Diana Ross. No, it's not. What? Because we already played that song, so I couldn't play it again. Yes, you can. No, we've already played it. This is uh, okay. this is River Deep, Mountain High. But but yep, yep, but yep, yep. if you're doing your top five songs, yeah, you should play songs that you've played before. Why? Because you can't be like, oh, these are my top five songs, except for if I'd already played them, then they don't count. That's mm. not how top fives work. No, it's top five songs I can think of at the time, and I, I don't like to repeat myself as well. Okay. People have already heard um, um, already heard Ain't No Mountain High Enough, yeah. which is a great song. You're yeah. right. And maybe I could have played another version of it. There, are, you know, done the Marvin Gaye Tammy Terrell mm-hmm. version. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I opted on this. I opted for this song because this is one of my favorite songs, Mary. All right. This is River Deep, Mountain High by Ike and Tina Turner. Okay. Produced by Phil Spector. Let's give it a listen, everybody. When I was a little girl, I had a rag dog. Only dog I've ever owned. Now I love you just the way I love that rag dog.
And we're back. Mary got to uh, the, the enjoyable experience of me singing part of the song for her. I don't know about enjoy. <laughs> the enjoyable experience. You know, like it, you, you, it gave you pleasure to hear me singing this song. I don't know about those words. Joy. Pleasure. <laughs> accurate. Doesn't but... seem accurate. Okay. No, maybe not. Oh, well, maybe I was having an enjoyable time. All right. Uh, so That's this what it was. So this was uh, <laughs> Ike and Tina Turner. Okay. River Deep Mountain High. What did you think of it, Mary? Uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. The song. Yeah. You enjoyed the song. song. You enjoyed me singing it. No. Oh. I enjoyed listening to the song. Oh, enjoyed listening yes. to the song. Okay. Yes, it's a great song. It's a, one of the great 60s songs. One of the a great song. But by the way, in America, Flopperoo didn't even get into the top 40. Sad. I know it's sad. Uh, Tina Turner has said the reason that it, well, she says they're to blame for not being more popular. Tina Turner and Tina Knight Turner. Tina. Oh, okay. Because, because they're black. And the song wasn't black enough right. to be R&B. Yeah. And they weren't white enough to, to fit in the pop charts. Yeah. And it kind of fell between two stools. That makes sense. And wasn't a hit. But Phil Spector was devastated by its failure and actually retired from music for two years. Really? And never really got back into it again. Basically became a recluse and slowly descended into madness, as we as we discovered later on, when he huh. possibly was convicted of, but was possibly innocent of the death of a woman by gunshot wound in his, oh, wow. his house. In his house? Yeah. Uh, but he was so eager to produce Ike and Tina Turner. Basically, he was really eager to produce Tina Turner. Ike was just part of the package. In fact, right. when Ike agreed to them doing this, he insisted, even if he had nothing to do with the recording, that it still be credited to Ike and Tina Turner, right. which Phil was okay with. Phil Spector was okay with. But he uh, he was so eager to produce them, he, gave, he paid $20,000 to their manager and label owner to release them from their contract, giving uh, Spectre full creative control over the sessions. And so he was planning like a whole album with them. And this was the first song they worked on. This was the first composition they recorded, River Deep Mountain High, written by Ellie Greenwich, Greenwich or Greenwich, I don't know how to how you say her name, Jeff Berry and Phil Spector. They wrote this together. Uh, Spectre recorded the backing tracks with the Wrecking Crew, his usual group of session musicians at Gold Star Studios in LA. So this included Leon Russell on keyboards, Jim Horn on saxophone, Barney Kessel on guitar, Glenn Campbell on guitar, Earl Palmer on drums, Carol Kay on bass, and Frank Cap on percussion. So like a super session of some of the most talented uh, you know, performers. These guys also played on a lot of Beach Boys hits. In fact, I shouldn't say that. They played on every hit that came out of L.A. at that time. They played on The Birds. They played on Moments of the Papas. They just played on everybody. Beach Boys, whatever. Just right. Everybody had them playing. And only that, they played like on the theme for Bonanza. And it's every, anything that was musical, these guys were involved in it in some way. Uh, so then after the backing tracks were done, Tina Turner was brought into the studio to sing the song. But uh, she was unable to give Spectre what he wanted. So she came back the next week, uh, this time with Ike. And Spectre uh, he was such a perfectionist, he, he made her sing the song over and over for several hours until he felt he had the perfect vocal take. And Tina Turner, or sorry, Tina Turner later recalled that uh, she sang for so long that she was drenched in sweat and had to take off her shirt and to sing in her bra. Oh, wow. She was so hot from singing the song over and over again. Uh, and like I say, the song was not a hit, but it's such a great song. Yeah. That's why it's, I guess maybe that's why it's ending our, mount, our mountain list. So there you go, Mary. That was our top five mountain songs. We're heading into cool. our last top fives here. Can I suggest a mountain song that I thought of when oh, you sure. said sure. top five mountain songs? Yep. Uh, it's the song uh, Getting Down on the Mountain by Corblund. <laughs> Corblund again. Yeah, I like him. Mary likes Corblund. Whereas I, I'm not so fond of country music, but... Except for Lyle Lovett. 
but even but I love it. It's kind of country music. He's country, but not 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 a really country. He's kind of he's country. He kind of falls into weird places. He's country. Um, Are you basing that on po- uh, the song? With the, if I if I had a pony, no. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, getting down on the mountain is about um people's incomes being reliant on something like oil. Okay, which is not sustainable. Yeah, and what how people are going to survive after they can no longer be a part of the oil industry. Huh. All right, well, let's give it a listen. You want to listen to it? Yeah. Okay, sure. So here we go, everyone. This is Corblund. This is Mary's top six track. This is this, this bubbling under. Mm-hmm. The top five. This is Corblund with, what's it called, Mary? Getting Down on the Mountain. There we go. From his 2012 album. 20, sorry, 2012 album. That's uh, it. We'll, we'll tell you when we come back. Yeah, we'll hey. tell you when we come back. Here we go. left in the fountain nobody wants paper money son so you just will stop counting can you break the horse can you light the fire what's that i beg your pardon you best start thinking where your food comes from and i hope you tend a good garden getting down on the mountain getting down on the mountain don't want to be around when the shit goes down i'll be getting down on the mountain Truck don't run, the bread don't come Have a hard time finding petrol Water ain't running in the city no more Do you hold any precious metal? Can you gut the fish? Can you read the sky? What's that about overcrowding? You ever seen a man whose kids ain't eight for seventeen days and counting? Getting down on the mountain Getting down on the mountain Don't wanna be around when the shit goes down I'll be getting down on the mountain The power's gone out, it's kerosene lamps and candles The roads are blocked, it's all gridlocked You got a shortwave handle Can you track the deer, can you dig the well? I couldn't quite hear your answer I think I see a rip in the social fabric Brother, can you spare some ammo? Getting down on the mountain Getting down on the mountain Don't wanna be around when the shit goes down I'll be going the ground on the mountain stops everything stops nothing left in the fountain nobody wants paper money son so you just will stop counting can you break the horse can you light the fire what's that i beg your pardon i think i see a rip in the social fabric brother can you pass the ammo getting down on the mountain getting down on the mountain don't wanna be around when the shit goes down i'll be getting down on the mountain getting down on the mountain getting down
All right, and we're back, everyone. That was uh, Corb Lund with Getting Down from the Mountain. Getting Down on the Mountain. Getting Down on the Mountain, sorry. From his 2012 album, Cabin Fever. There we go. That's... I guess technically it's Corb Lund and the Hurt and Albertans. <laughs> there we go. Uh, not bad. I like the uh, like the instrumentation of the song. Mm-hmm. He's a really good... It wasn't. It's not that corny country music sound no. that is so common today. Yeah. No, it's not. And he's been playing for quite a while, um, but he definitely has uh, a different sound and he goes for a lot of different topics mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. sort of class or than yeah. more mainstream country. No that, mention of, of a dog in a pickup truck no, down, by the, down by the creek bed. No, that's that uh, song is from my favorite album of his, but a close second is Horse Soldier, which is a concept album about um, horse soldiers. Okay. So he talks about, so it's like a totally history-based album. Okay. So he talks about... This is an album about centaurs? Sounds a little prog rock to me, Mary. No, it is not about centaurs. No, it's about horse soldiers all throughout history and like hmm. different nations using horses as soldiers. But he's also got a song about Brigham Young on there. He's got one. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. You like it is what you're saying. Cavalry. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, cool. All right. So that all was right. our top six. Yes. Sleep or mountain songs. songs so now we're going to move on. To. I just about said it because I... I'm speaking all over all over the place today. <laughs> this is a uh, top five sleep songs. This will be our all final right. part of the show. These are all alibis, which will send you, dear listener, to bed. Well, that's good because I'm getting tired. All right. Well, here we go. Time to tire Mary out. Let's listen to our first song. This is a band that both Mary and I like a lot. This is The Laws from their self-titled album, their The Laws. Album. Their only album, which came out in <laughs> 1990. That's a long time ago, Mary. Mm-hmm. That's a long time for a person who once was writing a lot of songs to write nothing for a long time. But anyway, this is uh, the song is called I Can't Sleep. Mm-hmm. Top five sleep songs. Here we go. First one, I Can't Sleep. Here we go.
And we're back. Mary, uh, I guess I can ask you what you thought of this song. I love that song. I think I know the answer. I love it. You probably I love that song. think the song is okay. I love it. Uh, you put up with it. I love that song. I love the laws. <laughs> I love most of the songs on that album. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much all of them yeah. are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I played a Laws song uh, earlier. That's right. On one of, I think on my first mix that I did. Yeah. And I believe I played... It was Timeless Melody. Timeless Melody. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Cool. Yes. We like them a lot. I think we've talked mm-hmm. about them before. Yeah. I, well, I talked about them on that one. Yeah. I did yeah. research about you their, did some research. their fractured their fractured history of yes. putting out that album. Yes. The fact that they had like four different producers work on it or five yeah. different producers work on it over time. And, and they recorded like 70 different songs. I don't think 70 different no, songs. it was probably like 40 just, songs. I think, but pro- probably there's 40 different versions of the same songs. I think it was like 40 different versions of like 18 songs or okay something. so okay. it was like more there were songs that were cut yeah, yeah and then even after the album was put out uh the band i think prompted by the main guy lee mavers yeah lee mavers uh disinherited it yeah just disowned it yeah yeah disowned no, it. no good They're like we hate this i'll take that money <laughs> yeah it's a real it's a really weird and real mess of an album like the song there she goes which was the big hit mm-hmm. sure was. was not produced by the producer of the album which was steve entwistle mm-hmm. was the, did i say steve entwistle yeah. i meant steve lillywhite produced that album also worked with like morrissey on voxel and i and, mm-hmm. and xtc on their great albums but he um he uh produced it like i think he was like the fifth guy in the row who produced it and what he did was perfectly okay, and the record company just couldn't understand what was going on with the band, yeah, and couldn't figure out why it was there was so much fussing up about all this stuff, and they just went, "Oh well, this is enough. We'll just release this version." Yeah, and that's what they did. I think one of the problems for the laws was a little thing called heroin, which is, yeah. can really mess with your processes. And some bands that don't want, sometimes people don't want to stop doing what they're doing because it's easy to record over and over again it's hard to produce new songs it's hard to tour and so it's easier just to fuss and and make a you know make a make a a weird kind of uh problem for everyone because you just can't accept that you know that the person who's producing you can't get the sound of the dust on the mixing board into your song which is one of his criticisms yeah but anyway it's a great album Oh, and, it is. It's and that's, fantastic. And that's a great song. It's a kind of like a, a song a minute great album, you know, like there is, there's one song I don't really like very much on. I think the very last song, I think it's okay. But yeah, the rest of the albums is fantastic. All right. Let's listen to our second song, everyone. This is The Psychedelic Furs from their album, their album Forever Now, their third album Forever Now, which came out in 1982. This is Sleep Comes Down, which also fits this because this is the top five sleep songs, Mary. I can't believe I'm choosing all these songs with sleep in them. All right, here we go. Ha ha ha. It's raining in my 
back mary what did you think of psychedelic first sleep comes down i thought it was a fun song it's a very good song mm-hmm. is what you mean to say well i spent it was fun nope it's a very good it. what i'm hearing right now is it's a very good song man uh, i wish i wish i could go back i wish i could have like the experience i mean i'm sure it's happening since then but it's just one of those things where you discover a group and you can't believe how how, how great it was that's basically what happened i saw Psych- psychedelic first on a live show playing this song live in concert and i don't know why but it seems to me that richard butler the lead singer of Psych- psychedelic furs was sitting on the stage singing the song i don't i don't know why i think that but i saw it was like i saw it like 11 30 a night on a friday night okay i just happened to tune into this show it was like a, it was kind of like don kirshner's rock concert i don't think it was don kirshner's rock concert which when i grew up 
in the seventies was a show that was on late night, and they would just have like live bands playing live in in the, you know, and it's pretty cool. And they used to be all over YouTube. You can't really find them as much nowadays because YouTube is really clamped down on all that stuff, right? But sometimes you can find them if they're up for a short time. And and yeah, and so it was. I just thought it was fantastic. So so I immediately wanted to buy the album. So when I had enough money, I actually was going into Vancouver, and I remember this vividly because it was the same day I saw Return of the Jedi. So I went to the record store. I went to Kelly's Records on on, on Granville Street, and I bought this album, and then we went and saw uh, Return of the Jedi, which I found a very disappointing film at the time. In fact, I still think it's kind of disappointing. But I was really excited to get this record anyway, and this record is really great. And so um, the last, the first two albums by, this is kind of brings us around, Mary, because the first two albums mm-hmm. that the Psych- Psychedelic Furs made were produced by Steve Lillywhite. But when they went to make their third album, he wasn't available. He was busy. Oh, okay. And then the record company wanted them to record with David Bowie. And at first they were kind of interested, but then it was going to take him a really long time to clear his schedule to produce them. They're kind of like, well, you know what? We don't really want to be associated with David Bowie because we're already being compared to him. And if he produces us, then that makes comparisons even more common. And that's not what we want. So let's we'll find someone different. And then Steve Lillywhite popped back in and he was like, hey, I got some spare time. I can quickly do the album for you if you guys are interested. And they're kind of like, no, we're sort of moving on from that. And they had 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 two members leave the group, not just leave the group, but leave rancorously, like left in anger. Right. The saxophone player and the, and the other guitarist was left the group. Was it because, because of crazy decisions, like saying no to um, two the, producers like that? Steve Lillywhite? And David Bowie. They didn't say no to David Bowie. Oh. I mean, they did say no to David Bowie. It was more because it would, he would, if he had a, like a long-term commitment, it would have been a, a long time for them to record their album. Right. You know, when you're in the heat of creativity, you don't want to have to wait for someone to clear sure. their schedule so they can come back and help you, right? So, and like I say, they also had like some aesthetic reasons or, you know, sense of, sense of their own selves reason as well. And I don't think it was unreasonable. So then the drummer su- suggested, who was a Todd Rundgren fan, suggested mm-hmm. that Todd Rundgren produce them. Right. So they went to New York. They went up to Woodstock, uh, near where, which is where uh, Todd Rundgren uh, lived, on a little road called uh, Mink Hollow Road, which is why his album is called The Hermit of Mink Hollow. Mm-hmm. And so they came and visited him, and they all got along really well. And so they decided, sure, they would get him to produce him. And Todd Rundgren was an interesting guy because he put to, he had a package. You paid him a hundred grand, he would produce your album for you. He would do everything that, you know, he would choose the songs, would produce your album, mix it, and also you would stay with him at his place in upstate New York. And so, you know, he produced, produced them, they came, and they all got along really well. And Todd Rundgren, like I say, is very interesting. He's, he's very controlling as a producer. He has his own ideas. When you get Todd Rundgren in, like, he decides what songs he's going to produce. You, you give him demos. And so the psychedelic first gave him demos, and he said, uh, no, these aren't good enough. I need full, fully develop demos i want to hear what you guys are thinking of doing mm-hmm. and so they did go back again but went back to england and they they produced a bunch of demos and they gave them to him and he rejected a bunch of them <laughs> said they weren't good enough i want better stuff from you guys and so some of it was sort of worked out very close to the when the album was recorded including the song the song was kind of a late comer to the album and then todd rundgren also he wants he wanted like you know he has like a certain idea of like of professionalism of performance and stuff like that like he really you know, he really wants you to give your all. And so apparently when the band were like, like not giving it their all, kind of feeling lazy, he would climb up on the roof and drop firecrackers down to scare them. 
What? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. And so you'd like, be launching these firecrackers outside, and like, so they'd just be kind of like hanging around doing nothing, and then suddenly there'd be these firecrackers going off. And to, it was his, his way of saying to them, "Let's go, let's get something good here." And so uh, he also brought in his own instrumentation. So he brought in like a cello player named Ann Sheldon. He brought in um, he brought in uh, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin from the Turtles came in to do background singing for for the song. And in fact, when they came in the psychedelic furs are kind of like who these old guys are going to come and sing like what do we want these old people singing on our on our song and so they were kind of odd men out and felt a little i felt a bit nervous but then todd rengren said you know who these guys are they sang with t-rex they sang with mark boland they sang with frank zappa these guys have been like have lent their voices to great songs and of course these you know they're british kids yeah psychedelic furs they're from britain so of an age that when T-Rex were at their height, like glam rock was at its height. They were like super big fans. So yeah. of course they were excited then, they were excited. And when they sang for them, they really liked them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we, we didn't, we're not going to play this song, but Forever Now, the kind of the, the hit song from the album, the they originally weren't going to sing on, they only sang on four songs on the album. But then they heard the song when they were in the studio and they were like, oh man, this is great. We have to sing on this song because this is the hit. We really want to have our voices on this song. So they came up with a part for it and they sang on that song as well. But yeah, I really like like the kind of beadless touches that Todd Rundgren brought to this song with the cello parts. It has a kind of real, kind of reminds you a little bit of like I'm the Walrus say and stuff right. like that, you know, with the way the, the cello's played. Which, of course, I love I'm the Walrus, so I really like this song as well. So there. If you don't like this song, you're wrong. All right. Let's go into our third song, Mare. All right. What We're, is it? Our third song is The Turtles, speaking of Mark Volman and Howard Kalen. How it's all coming around, everyone, all tying together. Uh, with their song Sound Asleep. This was not on an album. This was just a single on White Whale Records, the record company, and uh, backed with a song called Umbasa the Dragon. And it came out in 1968. So let's give a listen to Sound Asleep. <laughs> Summer 
All right, and we're back. Mary, as usual, you have to tell me what you thought of this song. I thought it was very fun. Thought it was very fun? Yep, I are liked you, it. Are you a fan of the Turtles? Yeah, I okay. like some of their stuff. Okay. I think they're one of the great underrated bands. Like, there's bands that are like, you know, like everyone thinks they're great and, and they're great. Like the Beatles. Like the Beatles, like the Rolling Stones, like the Kings, the Who, blah, blah, blah. From that time period, or American groups, you know. But I feel like the Turtles never got their due. Hmm. I think partly because they were chameleons. Okay. So they started off as a surf group. Right. Then they became a folk rock group. Okay. Doing Dil- Dylan covers and yeah. stuff. Then they became like a, a pop, like a sunshine pop group with Happy Together. Right. And this is kind of part of that time period for them, this song. I mean, they definitely had hits. They had hits. Happy Together. But I think I'm just talking in terms of like, yeah, you can have hits, but oh, but I don't think they ever like got their due as like how good they were as a group. Right. Like how many great songs they did and how yeah. how good they were, especially their later albums. Like it's really sad what happened to them because their record company was just a mess. Oh. It was real was it jerks RCA? to them. No, it was a little company called White Whale Records. Oh. Mm-hmm. And basically the Turtles were like their group. Yeah. Like there was no other group that was making money for White Whale Records. Mm-hmm. And, and they were just like, they didn't get the, the turtles at all. Right. You know, like the turtles, because the thing is, is like, I guess they were just thinking in an old paradigm, but the early 60s were over. The idea of like a corporate group, or like or a group having like, uh, you know, like, you know, you got to be more commercial. You got to think in pop terms. Like they wanted, they they literally wanted Flo and Eddie, Howard Cale and, and Mark Fullman to fire the rest of the band go to Nashville and sing songs to pre-recorded tracks mm. and call that the Turtles. Oof. That's what the record company wanted. Yeah. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. Like, yeah. that is stupid. And they spent so much time fighting with them and arguing and mm. and everything. And of course, that they, you know, we've played, we played that little uh, thing where they described their managing, manager, management career. Right. Which is just like insane. Like the, the knot they tied themselves. They tied themselves into the knot. Don't, don't think that anyone else is to blame. No, they're to blame. Mm-hmm. But they're young guys. They didn't know. They just thought yeah. they're like chasing the money, chasing fame. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, when people come up and say, hey, I can get you fame. I can get you money. They're like, sign me up. Yeah. Like, so it comes over and goes, hey, I can get you money. I can get you fame. Great. Sign up. We'll sign yeah. up. You know, we'll give you whatever you want. And so, yeah, they got themselves into a big knot. And, you know, like we were talking about last time, when, when they, when we left, we were talking about Sofa, when they left, when they left the Turtles, they were unable to use their own names on billing. Not not just the turtles, but their own actual names. It's Howard, Howard Kalen and Mark Volman. They could not appear under right. those names. So th- Wasn't there someone else who was like that? Who couldn't use their own names when they wrote songs? Was it the Everly Brothers? Yes, that's right. When they when they got in a fight with... Uh, but that was a choice that they made because they got in a fight with with uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Acuff Rose, with Leslie Ro- Wesley Rose yeah. of Acuff Rose Publishing. Uh, they didn't want to give him any money because yeah. if if they were having hit records with, in their own name, then it would go Acuff, to him. A cut of it would go to it would go to Acuff Rose, and yeah. and that was Leslie Rose. So I keep saying Leslie Wesley Rose, and so and so yeah. So they would write under pseudonyms, but then right. they would get caught and they'd have to like turn over the the royalties. No, this was just a case like well, because by that point the Turtles was like no fun anymore, and so they just broke it up, you know. But when you look at like the la- the final two albums of their career, like the these singles, like so uh, you. You know what I mean, which is like a great song. She's my girl, another great song. Happy together, of course, fantastic. Um, this song, Sound Asleep, another great song. And then you, uh, the story of rock and roll is pretty good. Well, that's a Harry Nilsson song, by the way. Hmm. Uh, it was another one that was just a single that they did around this time. It was not a hit. But then they did like 
the, the album The Battle of the Bands, which is not only like a great album, but a brilliant concept. Right. And so much fun. The idea like that it's not just the turtles, it's the turtles presenting the Battle of the Bands. So they like sing different they sing like different songs in different genres pretending to be different bands so they have like pictures inside the album like it's a you know it's like a fold-out sleeve like a gatefold sleeve we and it has to a song from that didn't we that's right that's right uh, the... i'm chief come on i want to lay and we're yeah. the royal macadamia nuts that was on our first uh, novelty mix that's right that's yeah. right good, good recall sweetie thank you i remember seeing that um yeah i, I think i took yeah. some pictures of it and put it on okay. online and then the next album which is called turtle soup uh produced by ray davis of the kinks mm-hmm. because they were such a huge fans of of um the Village Green Preservation Society, they they offered him an opportunity to produce. Cool. And which I think is like the only one at that time, maybe ever, that he did like outside production, Ray Davis. Uh, he had produced a little bit of the Ivies, who later became Badfinger, but he never, well, they were just demos. So yeah, so it's just like, and that song, it has some great songs on that album too. So, I mean, they were really like firing on all cylinders, but the record company was being such a nightmare to them that they never, they never, uh, had, they could never have fun. They could never enjoy what they, you know, they never like, and then probably was also ripping them off blind and everything else. So they just kind of, they just kind of called it a, called it a, called it a day. Yeah. But um, they also started like their own record label called Blimp Records, which was like a subsidiary of White Whale. Okay. So they were the first people to sign Judy Sill. Oh, wow. They, they signed her to a, to a publishing contract. And cool. So she could write songs for them. And their final single was Lady O, her song. Yeah. It's a great song. It is a great song. But that's the Turtles, Mary. I'm glad everyone could listen to that rant. You're welcome. About the turtles. My turtles rant. So let's listen to our next song, sweetie. Yes. What is it? This is The Tokens. Okay. And this song is called Some People Sleep, which comes from their 1969 album, Intercourse. So let's give a listen, everybody. Some people sleep to the sound of the steam. Some people sleep, Mayor. I thought it was okay. Thought it was okay. Yeah, I really like this song. I, but I'm a fan of the I'm a fan of the 
I'm a fan of vocal music, and so the Tokens are like one of the great vocal groups, best known for their hit song, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, obviously. But they had other kind of doo-wop hits. Right. And they started off as a doo-wop act. Oh, okay. And then they then they kind of changed as the 60s moved on. They moved on in their sound. And they signed to Warner Brothers. They put out a really good album called It's a Happening World, which is full of like very kind of pop songs, like very straight pop songs. Kind of in, you know, they're kind of like the Vogues from that time period too. Like a very pop, very straight, straight-laced pop act. But then they put this album out. Or then they, they presented this album to Warner Brothers, this album called Intercourse, which did not make Warner Brothers happy that it was called Intercourse. Mm-hmm. And it didn't make them happy that they're inspired by by kind of hippie hippieisms you know drugs and the beatles and the beach boys and this album's very reminiscent to me of an album like um a little bit like wild honey but more like friends more like brian wilson era Friends stuff where it's very personal songs right and very kind of like small short songs that are very kind of like varied in style and little snippets and stuff there's a song called on the bathroom wall animals uh Songs like that. There's a little kind of very coy ad for marijuana in uh, on the record. Just stuff like that, you know. And and Warner Brothers got this album, and to them, they wanted the tokens to be like this kind of straight pop act that they could sell to mom and dad. They didn't want them like trying to sell their music to kids. They wanted this to be like a mom and dad act, and the tokens were not really too keen on that. They wanted to express themselves, and and Warner Brothers said, uh, uh, no. And so they shelved this record and it didn't come out and it came out like a, in a minor release, like um, the tokens had their own record label. They had their, they had a production company called Bright Tunes, which they, they produced other groups. And then they had a record label called BT Puppy Records. And so they, they put out like a, a very small release of the album, about 500 copies. And so for a long time, it's traded at very, very high amounts of money for fans of the, for the tokens. And I, got this cd i don't know where i got it i think i actually ordered it online because i found it somewhere very cheap online and i ordered it but it's very good cool i'm sorry you didn't like the song no no i didn't hate it i just didn't like it it's a nice little lullaby i think but okay all right let's go to our final song this is sleep in the different a different sense of the word sleep this final song this is eleanor rigby from her 1987 album censorship called her song is called I Want to Sleep With You. So let's give a listen to this song, everyone. Your voice and I recall 
we're back. Mary, what did you think of I Want to Sleep With You by Eleanor Rigby? I thought it was a fun song. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. It's, it's very good. It's a bit long, I think. I think it could be yeah, like about 30 like, seconds shorter. I would agree with that, yeah. But that's a, that's a, that is a modern illness for music. So just that, you know, they have a tune and they want to keep playing it. And nowadays it seems that songs in the 60s, you got in trouble if your song was over two and a half minutes. Now, in the 80s, 90s, you get in trouble if your song is less than three and a half minutes. So there's this urge to draw the, to drag the songs out. When they don't really need to be dragged out, it'd be a lot better if it was shorter. This song was censored in England, by the way. Oh, really? It, the, out, the single came out, it, was a, it, was given, it had a free condom as a giveaway. Okay. And for whatever reason, I guess because she wants to sleep with this person, and, very, and, very, and she's a woman, mm-hmm. uh, the BBC said no to this song said, no, you can't have this song on the radio. <laughs> but here's the thing. I guess she's very closely associated with the British mod revival scene. Mm-hmm. Although when she joined the scene in the mid 80s, I would say that it was mostly over because the jam were over by that point. And the jam were like the whole reason for the mod revival was the jam. There were some other groups, the Lambrettas and, and whatever else. I can't think of anyone else. Were there other ones? You tell me. Come on, everybody. So- tell me right now. The Lambrettas, who else? There was another one that that uh, Paul Weller's Mick Talbot, his later partner in Style Council, he was in another group, but I can't think of their name now. Secret Secret Service or something, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, so she was part of the mod revival scene, right. but um, yeah. And then, and what's interesting about the time this album was done, uh, she got offered half a million pounds to pose nude for a Japanese magazine, hmm. and she turned it down. But okay. what's kind of funny to me is that when you bought the the album censorship, it came with a poster of her nude. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess she was okay with getting nude on her terms. She didn't want to do it for, sure. for a porn magazine. That makes sense. Just, but for the fun of it, what the heck? I mean, yeah, because I, I think it's it's one thing to be um, to do that for your own art. Yeah. And it's another thing to do it as a, like a porn actor. Yeah. You know? Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah. And the other thing is, her real name is not Eleanor Rigby. That's not surprising. But let me tell you right now. Her real name is Rigby Eleanor. <laughs> her, because she calls herself Eleanor Rigby, it's really hard to find something else about it. Like, because even if you put an Eleanor Rigby singer, yeah. you still get like a hundred links to things about Eleanor Rigby, the Beatles song. Yeah. But apparently she sort of disappeared now. She's kind of left the music scene. So that's too bad. Because that song's really good. But there we go, everyone. That is our fifth and final song of our top five sleep songs. I hope you enjoyed our top five songs. We had a listener send in some top five songs. Uh, actually, that was Chris, who also was so kind to send me local rabbits. So, uh, but I'd already kind of planned the show, and so I didn't have time to include it. So next week, we will have, we will play Chris's top five songs. I'm not going to tell you what the list is. And I might even play a couple songs of my own to kind of like as answer, to answer his list or to kind of echo his list. And are we going to ask people to send in top fives? Yeah, I would love for people to send in their top fives because I would love to talk about your top fives on this show, everyone. So if you send them in this over the next two weeks, we'll feature them on our next show. How does that sound? Yeah. So Um, that'd be fun. We are going to be recording, just look, so the next episode's coming out on the 29th. I can can look at my uh, list. Yes, it is. Oh, okay. Because one's coming out on the 15th. This one's coming out on the 15th? And then the 29th. So okay. we need them in by the 26th. There you go. So that's plenty of time for you to think of a topic, cheese, and five songs about cheese. No, not cheese. Like Cheese and Onions by The Ruddles. Very good song. 
Why are you looking like that? You're trying to think of another cheese. cheese. <laughs> There's other cheese songs, believe me. So, but you can choose whatever you want. I just threw cheese songs out there as an as an as an idea. But you choose your make your own list of songs right. and send it to me, and we will play it on the show. Sounds good. And talk about it. And, and make fun of you for your choices. No, I won't make fun no, of you. No, we won't make fun of people. Um, and if you would like to send us that, you can send us an email at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. You can also comment on our um, on our on the episode post at sneakydragon.com yep. or contact us on Facebook at Sneaky Dragon or on Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon. That is correct. And if you're looking for any of those addresses, if you go to our contact us page on the website Sneaky Dragon, you will find all those links there as well as our snail mail address. But Wait. don't snail mail us a uh, a local rabbit city. No, no, your top five list. Oh yeah, no, that would take too long. Take too long. Well, I don't know if you send it right away, it would probably no. get here. But but don't take a chance. Just email that to us. But if you happen to find another local rabbits. You know, you can send that to me. No, I'm just joking. I don't need another local rabbits. I have, I have, I have all of them now. Back, back in my collection. Rubbing my fingers, everyone. In fact, I also a little while ago found their first EP, which I was very excited to find. Yes. The Super Duper EP by the Local Rabbits. So, yes. So hopefully, if I make some more mixtapes, I'll include one of the songs on that because I came, I got that long after I finished the mixtape yeah. project. But yeah, that was a great find. That made me very happy when I found that because cool. I'd wanted that for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's very good. It's very good. Yes. That's not surprising. Local Rabbits is fantastic. Yeah, I guess you're right. I was listening to a song of theirs the other day, and I was what? like, these guys are so great. What song was it? I guess that was a trick question. Uh, I don't remember. They're all so good. I think it was... I think it was like Stomp Your British Knights Down. Stomp Your BKs Down, yeah. yeah. It was like a weird one like that. That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a basic concept. It is. Okay. So, we finished the show in record time, everybody. Yeah. I don't know how Probably we... because we started recording at 8 p.m. and I've worked tomorrow. And Dad also has worked tomorrow. I also have worked tomorrow. We also worked today. And I worked today and I actually worked a really hard day today. Yeah. It was a full day of work. Mm-hmm. I sweated. I sweated today, which I don't always do at work. So. I sweated today too. You did? Because I was outside for a lot of it. Or <laughs> I was outside for like an hour. Okay. We did bocce ball outside. Oh, fun. Which for me means a lot of bending over and picking up bocce balls. <laughs> a lot. It's very, it gets very tiring. Especially because <laughs> I have to wear a mask all day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. Yeah, that's, that's blah. Yeah. All right. So there we go. Another one in the another one in the can, Mary. We turn off your gosh darn email, Dad. <laughs> I guess I should. I don't really get that many emails. It's so weird. Whenever you I do the show, get we... like four every time we record. <laughs> but it's so weird because I don't really get that many. I guess I do get that many because the reason I get them is because I I get them from like all these companies that I bought yeah. one thing from, yeah. and now I'm like haunted by them. Yes. You know, it's pretty easy to unsubscribe from emails. They say that, but then you push those buttons and nothing ever happens. Oh, uh, you don't have an iPhone. But if you had an iPhone, um, every time you open up an email from a mailing list, it yeah. says, do you want to unsubscribe? Oh. And then you hit it and it sends an email to them saying, oh, okay. unsubscribe me from this. Oh, cool. It's a pretty nice feature. That's very good. Okay. And then you get another email from them that says, we're sorry to see you go. You can always resubscribe. And I'm like, stop emailing me. <laughs> I don't want to hear from you. That's why I unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, um, bye. Bye, everyone.